أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لن تنالوا البر حتى تنفقوا مما تحبون وما تنفقوا من شيء فإن الله به عليم We're inshallah starting the third, uh, the fourth para, fourth of Jews in the Sasura Al-Imran, verse number 92. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here, لَن تَنَالُ birra. So what happened here, the occasion of this revelation, there was a sahaba, Sayyidina Abu Talha radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And he came to Sayyidina Rasulullah after this verse, and he said, or actually during the, before this verse, and he said that my favorite thing that I own is a particular orchard that I have, which is near this well. Bir in Arabic means well, near the well of Ha Bireha. And he said, I want to gift in the path of Allah subhanahu wa that which I love the most. So he gave this and Sayyidina Rasulullah told him that you should distribute it amongst your relatives. And after he gave, when he made the niyat to give sadaqah, he said that it's better for you to give it between your relatives. Why? Because you will get more sawab. You will get double sawab. One is for sadaqah, for charity. And the second is for taking care of relatives. So the occasion of this revelation is mentioned in the hadith in Bukhari. Then Allah subhanahu wa revealed a verse. This is also the shatn of sahaba karam. That they would do an amal and Allah subhanahu wa would make the ikhlas and the me'ar of their amal a pattern and a model for all of humanity, for all of the ummah. So here Allah subhanahu wa said in Qur'an, لَن تَنَالُوا You will have never ever really attained al-birra. You will have never attained proper, true, deep piety. And we did this bir in Ayat al-Bir. Hatta until you spend that from portion from your wealth, a portion from your wealth, to hibbuna that you love. And this is something we did earlier as well in terms of the adab of giving in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that you must give what you love for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It means in some sense what hurts you to give, what you don't want to give, what you would have rather have loved to have kept for yourself, what you would have loved to enjoy for yourself. And this can mean money, this can mean many things. This can mean time. This can mean time, this can mean money, this can mean strength, this can be choice of profession, choice of career, choice of what to do. If you make any such thing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I'm extrapolating, here literally it means what you spend, it means money. But the lesson in this ayah can be understood to also mean, to mean anything. And every single thing that you spend, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be all aware of it. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning another issue that is the Jews. That some of the Jews came to the Prophet and asked a question. So from verse 93 onward, is a response, from verse 93 is an answer to a question. The Jews came and they said that, okay, you claim to follow Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. Well, Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. he never ate the meat of a camel, nor did he ever drink the milk of a camel. And you do both of these things. So you're not really following the millet Ibrahim that you claim to follow. So in this, in response, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse. So what happened was that it was lawful, 100% lawful. There's a reason that the Jews were confused. It was 100% lawful for Sayyidina Ibrahim salam and in the deen of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam to eat the meat and drink the milk of a camel. And so was it lawful for Sayyidina Musa salam. Once Sayyidina Ya'qub salam, one of the prophets, once he was suffering from a great illness, and he made another, he made an oath and pledged to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if you cure me of this illness, 
than when I would stop eating that which I loved the most. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did cure him of an illness, of that illness, and therefore he fulfilled his pledge, and he stopped eating the meat of a camel, and stopped drinking the milk of a camel. Even then, this was not meant to be a religious injunction for his community. This was just his own personal, what you say, dhati amal, this was his own personal matter and affair. And here you also get an ishara from Qur'an al-Kareem. There are some Muslims, jurists, who we respect their scholarly opinion. They were of the opinion that eating the milk of a camel breaks your wudu. And there was some suggestion that there was some impurity related with that. This is the view Imam al-Shafi, However, Imam Abu Hanifa, ta'ala, views that eating camel meat does not in any way affect your wudu at all. And one of the dalils for the Hanafi Madhab is this ayah. That not only is it something that is mentioned then, because in defense it is established to be something from Milita Ibrahim, and from the hadith that we learn its occasion of revelation, it was beloved to Sayyidina Yaqub salam. so this would not be something then that would break wudu. Okay, now let's go to the ayah. Kullu ta'ame kana hilla lin-nabiyyi Israel. Every single food that was, that was made permissible to the Bani Israel, illa ma harama Israelu, except that which Israel made haram. Israel is the name of Yaqub a.s. So everything that was permissible to the progeny, was, per, was permissible to the progeny of the, and the progeny and community of Sayyidina Yaqub a.s. Except that which Sayyidina Yaqub a.s. made haram ala nafsihi, on his own self, not on his community, not on his progeny, not on deen. It was made haram on his own self, and that I've explained to you how that happened. Min kabli from before, min before, an tunazzal al-Torah, and this is even before the Torah was revealed. So it's not even in Judaism. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala challenges them, kul fatu bi Torati. That kul say, my beloved Muslim, tell those Jews, bring your Torah. Let's see if it's written in the Torah that Sayyidina Ibrahim al-Islam didn't eat the meat of camel. It won't be written there. فَتْلُوهَا in كُنْتُمْ صَادِكِينَ And recite that Torah and those verses of the Torah that contain the ruling that you claim that contains if indeed you are people of truth. فَمِنْ إِفْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبَ And those people who, and each and every such person who attributes a lie to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلَكَ After this, that means after these ayat are revealed, فَأُوِلَاكُهُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ Indeed, these are unjust transgressors and wrongdoers. This can apply to any Muslim today as well. Any Muslim to whom the Qur'an al-Kareem has been revealed, that's every Muslim, and they deliberately falsify some teaching of Qur'an, or they attribute a lie to Allah subhanahu ta'ala, or they say sometimes, they like to say, Allah ta'ala, and they're not saying it because they've read the Qur'an, they're saying it on the basis of their nafs. Their nafs does not accept such a type of behavior. Now they should just simply say that, that I would never accept such a type of behavior. But instead they will say in Urdu, Nei deen mein koi aise baat nahi hoge. Allah ta'ala ne koi aise baat nahi hoge. Nabiya Kareem sallam ne koi aise baat nahi hoge. Where in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did indeed say that in the Quran. And the Prophet did indeed say that in the Hadith. So such a person would then fall under the weight of this ayah, Humul Dhalimun, that such a person is an unjust transgression. Qul, say my beloved messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and in proxy all of those who follow you, sadaqallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken truly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken the truth. The Qur'an al-Kareem is truth incarnate. 
فَتَّبِعُوا مِلَّةِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ حَنِيفًا فَتَّبِعُوا Again, plural. You, Prophet and all of your Sahaba should follow, and all of your Ummah should follow مِلَّةِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ The true way of Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. which was Hanif. And I've already discussed with you what Hanif was the first time it came. وَمَا كَانَ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ And Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. was never, ever, ever from amongst the idol worshippers. Now, next few eyes, we're now 96 onward. Allah SWT is going to talk about Makkah Mukarramah. إِنَّ أَوَّلَ بَيْتٍ وُذِئَ لِلنَّاسِ الَّذِي بِبَكَّةَ مُبَارَكٌ وَهُدًا لِلْآلَمِينَ Allah SWT is saying here in Quran, first of all, this is part of Millati Ibrahim. Some of the Jews were saying that you left Baytul Muqaddas for the Kaaba, and Baytul Muqaddas is the superior Qibla. So Allah SWT is saying, number one, that all of you have seen earlier, Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. and his son Ismail a.s. reconstructed Kaaba. So the Ibrahimi way is the Kaaba. Then all of you saw earlier, Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. made a dua to Allah SWT to send a prophet and to send a community and to make that place a place in Amman and that Allah Ta'ala should show the manasik, the rights of worship for that Kaaba. Awala here also means not just at the time of Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. but the very first time the Kaaba was made. Now I told you earlier that Sayyidina Adam a.s. had made it. According to some commentators, even before Sayyidina Adam a.s. made the Kaaba, the very first drop of the universe that was fashioned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was that matter or that point in space and time that is where the Kaaba exists. That's a new Big Bang theory for you. The Big Bang did not occur billions and billions of light years away. The Big Bang occurred at some point in the Kaaba, and maybe the bang expanded matter out, and then for eons and eons that matter coalesced and formed, and again planet Earth was formed. Second thing they say that above the Kaaba is a place called Betul Ma'mur. Betul Ma'mur, and something recurring to that is going to come later in Quran, and I will show you that when it comes. Betul Ma'mur is the place where the angels make the wall. And on top of that is the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these three things are in a column. Kaaba, Baytullah on earth, Baytul Ma'mur in the angelic realm, and Arshullah in Allah subhanahu wa realm. Our own Shaykh and then I myself had the opportunity to see this show. There's a planetarium in Washington, D.C. If I remember correctly, it's the Smithsonian Institute's own planetarium. And they show, they show you the show in the planetarium called The Stars. And in that, they tell you many, many things about the stars. And at one point, then they speed up, they show you that how the stars are actually moving. Right? And the whole galaxies are moving. Not just as the Earth rotating around the solar system, the solar system is moving, the Milky Way galaxy is moving. And then when they sped it up, they, you could see clearly from that planetarium show that there was one white light that wasn't moving. And then they highlighted that. They said that that is one star that does not move. And when they sped it up, all of the universe, all of the galaxies and galaxy clusters were orbiting around that central point counterclockwise. So our Sheikh felt that the whole world is doing tawaf. The entire universe is doing tawaf around this column. What is the column? Baytullah on earth, Kaaba. Next level of the column, that particular star. Next level of that column, Baytul Ma'mur in the angelic realm. And top of that column, the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the entire creation is doing tawaf around this column. What is that column? That is the column of the Wadidat, the Jaliyat, Fuyuzat, and Warat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's relation to His creation is one in which you have divine emanations, divine manifestations, known as His Rahmah, His mercy, His karam, His generosity, His fuzzle, His grace etc., etc. 
So it means that in the awwala baytin, that means the superiority of the Kaaba is because it's primordial. It's the very first place or abode that was placed for humanity. Linnas, alladhi bibakka. Now this word bakka, commentators have written in quite detail about the possibilities of this meaning. One thing that they write is that the whole greater valley is known as Makumakarama, and the particular point, particular GPS latitude longitude point where the Kaaba is, that was known as Bakka. Some have suggested that in Arabic language sometimes you can replace a meme with a ba. Others have said that Makkah is being referred to as Bakka here because it's the word Bakka means literally means where things are broken, means where all other strengths and powers are shattered. Why? Again, because this is the Marka, the, the, the Jaliyat, the center of the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all other powers and mights and abilities of Ghairullah are shattered against this column of power. Khair, Mubarakan, full of Baraka. Right? So this shows you a very important concept in our deen is that of Baraka. Baraka is also Ghaib, it's unseen. It's unseen. Normally in English, the closest thing they have to this is blessings. So it's a place of, that is blessed. Wahudan. And there's a place of hidayah, a place of guidance. So some feel then that the jaliyat from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hidayah comes down onto Baytullah and then is dispersed and disseminated from there. And what is it for? Now first it said, Linas, here was it going to say, Lil Alameen. Kind of fits with that planetarium show idea. Right? That Baytullah, the Kaaba, is, has barakah and is guidance for Alameen, for all of the universes. For every single thing that is Ghairullah centers upon this place called Baytullah, that is Kaaba. May Allah subhanahu take all of us there over and over again and may He make us enable to benefit from its barakat and its hidai when we're there. But wherever we may be, because we were always in the alameen, may He always enable us to benefit from its barakah and its hidayah. Fihi, now fihi can mean in that, in Bakka, in Baytullah, in Kaaba, and that's what it means primarily. It can also mean that in that act of making Makkah Mukarramah, this primordial place for all of humanity and placing in it Barakah and Hidayah, ayatun, they are signs, bayinat, clear and manifest signs, such as Maqamu Ibrahim, such as the place of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhisam. So we had done this earlier. This had come that the Sayyidina Umar wanted to take this as a musallah. Now what is the sign in this? So one way the commentators explain this is that if you see it today, also you see the footprints Normally when you step on a stone, your footprints aren't left on that stone. That's the way stone is. So the fact that Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam's footprints are on that stone, that itself is a clear sign, is a manifest miracle. But if you see, the word is plural, ayatun. So Maqam Ibrahim is just one of them. There are many, many features there. When you go, you will see there's the well of Zamzam, the water of Zamzam itself that has been flowing for so many and so many thousands of years and producing daily so many, so many gowns and liters. This, there's a place called Mizab Rahmah, which is the fountain of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is just actually a rain spout on top of the Kaaba. But anybody who goes past it or under it can make the niyat that they are going underneath the ocean of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is also an ayah that Allah ta'ala made that rain spout, told the Prophet to construct that rain spout. So there are many, many signs in that place. Safa, Marwa, Many places, Babi Kaaba, many such places that Allah Ta'ala has placed in there. Alright. وَمَنْ دَخَلَهُ كَانَ amina. What does this mean? Well, this means, number one, that any person who enters, right, 
Any person who enters the sacred precincts, that's why it's called Masjid al-Haram. Haram means it's inviolable. Many, many things become prohibited. It is sacred. So a person who enters there will enter into the sacred place where killing and hunting is prohibited. Second, it means that when you enter into it, you will have aman, you will have peace in your heart. Your iman will come to life. You will have sukun itminan inside your heart. Sometimes this phrase, so I, sometimes I always highlight to you how certain people use phrases of Quran. So this is a permissible use to use this waman dakhalahu kana amina for something in deen. For example, if I was to say to you, when you enter the masjid, man dakhalahu kana amina, whomsoever enters the masjid enters the state of aman, enters the state of peace. Alright? Sometimes people feel whenever you enter siratul mustaqim, whenever you have nisbat on following the nabiin, siddiqeen, shahada, and salihin, when you make a conscious effort to attain that nisbat, then you will also have this aman. Wallahi ala nasi hijjul bayt. And for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, again, lam is ikhtisas, exclusively for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah comes for lazum. It is mandatory upon humanity. Hijjul bayt. I could have said al-mu'mineen. Technically, obviously, those members of humanity who accept Islam. But because the Baytullah, it was what? What was it? Wadiyalinnas. And so actually, all of humanity, to be human means to love the Kaaba. To be human means to make a pilgrimage to Kaaba. This is Quranic humanity. I mentioned this to you a few days ago. If you ever wanted to come up with a definition of Quranic humanity, you should go through Quran and look at the ayat of An-Nas and Insan. Hijjul Baytullah, the pilgrimage for that person, in humanity, manistata'a ilayhi sabila, that person who has the ability to take a path that would lead them to that pilgrimage. This is the first time that maybe I'll mention a little bit here about Hajj. This is the incredible importance of Hajj. First is istata'a. Number means, number one, you have to have, you must be mature. Means after puberty. Number two, you must have the financial means to make that journey. Number three, you must have the financial means to support yourself for the duration of that journey. Number four, you must have financial means to return from that journey to your home. Number five, you must have the financial means that your family members or anybody who the Sharia has placed under your responsibility, financial care, or anyone that you have done ilzam on yourself, Or anyone that you have taken upon yourself the responsibility to do their financial care, that you have enough resources that they can all be taken care of during the entirety of your traveling there, staying there, and coming back. So that is the financial responsibility. Third means the physical ability to either be able to perform that journey on yourself, or if you have the financial ability to hire somebody as your caretaker, wheelchair driver, etc., then that would also count. That means you're physically liable for going. Right, if you have enough ability, financial ability to take somebody with you in any level of khidmah that you may need. So all of this falls under istita. However, some of the more spiritual commentators of Quran would also add a certain thing, not as a condition for fardiyat, not in a condition for making hajj obligatory, but in a condition in terms of istita means that you are prepared. So you suggest that there is, in addition to making such extensive financial provisions for this journey, a person should make spiritual provisions for this journey, and a person should prepare to understand how to live that journey. One is always amazed during the journey of Hajj what basic questions people ask. You would think that you would have come at least reading a basic book or manual or going and listen to a talk or presentation. You would learn and know such an ahem farth. 
Another thing about Hajj is that Hajj is Farad, but you only get one shot. You see, you mess up a Farad Fajr, you get another chance tomorrow. You don't pray Zuhr Salah with that much intention, you get another chance tomorrow. And if you live a normal life expectancy, you get thousands and thousands of chances. Farad Hajj is just once. If you go again, it's nothing. And you can't even make niyat that let this and this one I did better, let it replace that Farad Hajj. It can't. It can't replace it. You can hope that you get enough sawab for this, that it may, you know, compensate for the ghaflat and the unawareness that we did when we went. But Farad Hajj is a one-shot deal. When you adal that farad, it's adal. When you fulfill it, it's done. And after that, it will always be nafah. So extremely important. But amazing that the people who go for their first time go extremely unprepared. Extremely unprepared in terms of their deen, taqwa, spirituality, their knowledge, their understanding of what they have to do. Right? So that is also an ishara over here. Another thing about hajj is that many people ask the question that when hajj become, when does hajj become farad? Alright, it becomes farth, irrespective of whether you have money and you're saving it for your daughter's wedding, you're saving it for your son's wedding, you're saving it to build another portion of your house, you're saving it for college education. If you have the money, hajj is farth. It doesn't matter whatever other purpose you would like to reserve that money for, or in your mind you have allotted that money for, mere possession of sufficient money, as I outlined it, right, is enough to make hajj farther. Second question, that if had is fard upon me, as we have now defined it, must is it fard for me to go immediately? Scholars have written a lot on this, and they normally write on this subject in two ways. One is pure academic discourse, and second is their communication to the masses, because they're trying to incentivize behavior. Technically speaking, it is not absolutely fard to go that very year or that very moment but it is extremely, highly, strongly recommended and commendable that you do indeed go as soon as it is farth upon you. That otherwise you get into all types of thorny issues that it was farth upon me once and then all of a sudden my business went down and now I'm actually a person upon whom Hajj is no longer farth. But it was farth upon me once, will I be called to account for that or not? Scholars have taken many positions, written a lot and taken different, slightly different positions on this issue as well. Here I can't sit here and teach all the farth of Hajj, that's for a Hajj seminar, right? You should only really delay for an extremely strong reason, right? Let's say a woman, Hajj is farth upon her, but she's pregnant, so she feels that even if technically she is physically able to go while pregnant, she would rather wait till she delivered the baby and go the next year, right? That is something that may be considerable. Or somebody has a newborn baby and feels, let me wait a year when the baby is a bit older, I could leave her with my mother and then I'll be able to go. That is something that seems like something that could be considered. But whatever it is, it's not going to be something that would delay that Hajj for any much more than one or two years. Maybe there's a student, right, who is enrolled in a full-time degree program and they are not allowed in this in this another aspect of having a quote-unquote un-Islamic system, right? They are not allowed to take leave Right? If they take leave saying they want to debate a few 16-year-old tinny boppers in Bangkok to win the World Debating Championship Award, they will be given money to go and they will be given break from their vacations. And I, as a professor, had to face with petitions even making me design makeup cup exams for such a, for such a cause. Allah Akbar. <laughs> but if the student would ask for Hajj, sometimes in some of our increasingly un-Islamic educational institutions in Pakistan, that was not considered a good enough reason to go. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. 
And really, don't get me started on what's going on in your educational institution. Alright? Alright. And that person who rejects this, either rejects the fardiyat of hajj, if you reject that hajj as far as you're no longer a believer, right? Or that person who denies to go, who denies to go, and you'd be amazed at how many Muslims in Pakistan are financially able to go and don't go. And they still call themselves Muslim. They don't go and they have no intention of going. Don't think Allah needed your hajj. Allah's response is completely independent from you, forget you, anil alameen, from all of the worlds in the universe. Gul ya ahl kitab. Okay, now here comes another series of ayat. Say my beloved messenger to the ahl kitab, lima tukfuroon bi ayatillah. Then why is it that you deny and disbelieve in the verses of revelation that come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Wallahu shaheedun ala ma ta'amanun. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is witnessing he stands witness over each and every single thing that you do. Right? Those of you who studied Naho and Usul, you should know how to translate now. Alama, right? Ma comes for umum. It's ishtimal, it includes each and every fard of its set, right? So Allah Ta'ala stands witness over each and every single thing that you do. Qul, oh my beloved Messenger, address these people. Ya Ahl Kitab, O people of the book. Limata Sudduna Ansabilillah. That why is it that you prevent and stop people from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Originally this means first, not only they would prevent people from going on hajj, that's been covered before. It also means that they would prevent people from the way that leads to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is the way that leads to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Siratul Islam. And who is it? Right? Man amana tabghunaha iwaja. So you're preventing who? Man amana, that person who believes. And what is your desire? Tabghunaha, what is it that you wish? You wish ha for that sabilullah, you wish that that path that leads to Allah's sponsor should have what in it? Iwaja. Iwaja means it should be crooked. It should be disputed. It should be confounded. It should be confused. Wa'antum shuhada'u. And you know that that path should be true? So there's a true path leading to Allah subhanahu and you want to create crookedness in it. And Allah subhanahu is not aware of any single thing that you do. Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, O you who believe. Okay, now the shatna nazul of this, and I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to come back to how is it that some members of Ahl Kitab try to prevent people even today from following the deen of Islam and try to create crooked and confounded understandings of deen, so a person is so confused, they don't travel on the path of Shalat al-Mustaqim. However, for ayah number 100 onward, the Shatna Nazul, the Ketan relation of this is that, now before Sayyidina Rasulullah migrated to Medina Manawra, the people who were living there, two tribes of Aus and Khazraj, they were constantly fighting one another. And in the course of their battles, generations of battles with another, because all Arabs in the Arabian Peninsula were an oral tradition, people of poetry, so they compose a lot of battle poetry, military poetry, battle hymns, right? Reminiscing about the great military heroes who lived and died and fought in those battles that they fought with one another. After they became mu'min, they became brethren to one another. Complete, absolute peace with one another. And living under the Sayyidina Rasulullah in Medina Manorah. So there was a Jew, Shah ibn Qais, and he was really upset about this. He was really upset that, look, the Prophet has managed to unite these two tribes. So what he did, he didn't go himself. This is also a sign for you. Many evildoers aren't bold enough to go themselves. 
he hired someone or paid someone or maybe told someone, young man, it says that he told a young man to go and sit, go to some gathering in which there's, to the Sahaba, gathering of Sahaba Medina Manorah, in which there's some members from the Aus clan and some members from the Khazir clan and just start reciting to them some of that poetry. Right? Okay. So he went. When he started doing that, then people's passions started. And again, because they were people of an oral literary tradition, the poetry moved them deeply. So their passions started getting incited. There were two of them. Now I'm not going to take their names, although it is mentioned in Tafsir. There were two of them. as one each who got a bit extra incited over that poetry and started scuffling with one another. When they started scuffling with one another, one of them must have said something or said, right? And then the others started fighting one another. So then some Sahaba then told the Prophet or somehow he came to find out and he came. Who he brought with him was a group of Muhajirin Sahaba. And then Nabi Karim Sallallahu or the Muhajirin Sahaba came to them and told them, that, what are you doing? Right? And when the second the Prophet came, they started crying. They made tawbah to Allah Subhanahu and they started hugging one another. <laughs> they started crying, they made tawbah, they started hugging one another, and then Allah Ta'ala revealed these ayat. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, o you who believe, in tuti'u fariqam minna alladheena utu kitab, that if you obey a group from those who have been given the book, so that particular Jew and the young man, and maybe a few of them, who conspired against you in this way, yaradukum ba'da imanikum, Kafirin. What is it that they want? They want to return you after you have taken Iman, they want to return you back to the status of being the unbeliever and uncouth and undisciplined person that you were before Nabi came to some Islam came to you. Wakaifa takfurun. And how could you? This is the announcement of Wakaifa. How could you? Takfurun, how could you disbelieve? Wa antum tutla alaykum ayatullah. And you people recited unto you are the verses of Allah. وَفِيكُمْ رَسُولُهُ اللَّهُ And in between you and amongst you and in front of you is Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And we should feel that same way ourselves. That how can we disbelieve when verses of Qur'an are recited from our masajid, recited by our teachers, recited around us, available for us to recite. And we have with us the sunnah and hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then Allah Subhanahu explained to them, وَمَنْ يَعْتَسِمْ بِاللَّهِ So that person who holds fast, and just watch these words, يَعْتَسِمْ بِاللَّهِ That person who holds fast to Allah Subhanahu فَقَدْ هُدِيَا إِلَى سِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ That such a person has indeed been guided to the straight path. So as if you have to hold fast to Allah Subhanahu you will be guided. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ حَقَّ تُقَاتِهِ وَلَا تَمُوتُنَّ إِلَّا وَأَنْتُمْ مُسْلِمُونَ That O you who believe, اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ Fear Allah Subhanahu How much? حَقَّ تُقَاتِهِ As it is his right to be feared, as he deserves to be feared, as his status and stature demands that he should be esteemed. Fear Allah as He deserves to be feared. Know Allah as He deserves to be known. Love Allah subhanahu as He deserves to be loved. Be aware and conscious of Allah subhanahu as His might and majesty and the fact that He is Al-Basir, He is As-Samiya, He is Al-Aleem should demand that we should always be aware in a state of dhikr of Him. وَلَا تَمُوتُنَّا And do not die إِلَّا وَأَنْتُمْ مُسْلِمُونَ And do not die except that that death overcomes you in such a state that you are Muslim. It means your very iman depends on your taqwa. If you leave taqwa, then you are in danger of death overcoming you in such a state that you are no longer Muslim. 
وَاَتَّسِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ Above Allah Ta'ala said, وَمَا يَعْتَسِمَا بِاللَّهِ Here Allah Ta'ala saying, وَاَتَّسِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ And those who grab the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, jami'ah all together. What does this mean? It means that there are two levels. مَا يَعْتَسِمَا بِاللَّهِ That's direct. That person who holds fast to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And second, وَاَتَّسِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ Grab to the rope of Allah that is indirect. That means you need to step up. So the best way I can explain this to you is going back to something that we have taught some of you in earlier occasions. Imam al-Ghazali rimullahu ta'ala. In his life, st- life story, he's written his own spiritual autobiography, Al-Munkid min al-Dalal, The Deliverer and Deliverance from Error. And he writes in that that he had two spiritual crises. One was about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that he resolved directly. May yaqtasim billah. He turned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly and he says, Allah ta'ala cast the nur of his eye into my heart and I became absolutely certain that he existed. But after I had done that first step, I had grabbed firmly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and believed in him, then Imam Allah said, then I had a second step that I have now to travel. In other words, the first step is to acknowledge Surat al-Mustaqeem, to accept Surat al-Mustaqeem, to enter upon Surat al-Mustaqeem and the second stage is now to travel Surat al-Mustaqeem. So for that Imam al those of you who remember that text, he looked at the different seekers of truth, the four categories of seekers, the people who were seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he concluded in that book that the people of tasawwuf of his time, the people of spirituality and sincerity, were the greatest seekers of the truth, and so he grabbed onto them. So that is a hubble, one way, right? But it means that you also need a sabab to get to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you have to hold that sabab, the same word, Allah subhanahu uses in two lines. The same word, i'tisam, means strongly, firmly grasp that Allah ta'ala uses for how we have to be with Him that is as strongly and firmly we must grasp that sabab, that hubble that leads to Allah subhanahu Jami'a, and we should grasp that together. Wala tafarraku, and you should not split in, into different groups and sects. وَذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةِ اللَّهِ alaykum, And you should remember the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on you. إِذْ كُنْتُمْ أَعْدَاءً Before, and this is addressing those people, don't split back into the two sects of Aws and Khajraj, before you were enemies to one another. فَأَلَّفَ بَيْنَكُمُ بِكُمْ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put love and compassion between your hearts. فَأَصْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَتِهِ إِخْوَانَا And by means of his bounty and blessing, فَأَصْبَحْ He made you sahaba, he made you companions, in what sense? إِخْوَانًا In a brotherly way. He made you brotherly companions. Alright? وَكُنْتُمْ عَلَى شَفَا حُفْرَةٍ And indeed before you were on the brink of an abyss, مِنَ النَّارِ of hellfire. فَنْكَذَكُمْ But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rescued all of you, لِكُكُمْ Quran, Allah Ta'ala rescued all of you Sahaba minha from Jahannam. Right? Okay. Thus does Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala make clearly apparent to you the verses of His revelation and His signs. لَأَلَّكُمْ تَحْتَدُونَ So that you may become rightly guided. Alright. This ayah sometimes, unfortunately, again, now what is the original thing in this ayah? Allah Ta'ala is reminding Sahaba Ikram that don't become like the way you were when you were unbelievers. So the sectarianism being referred to here is that sectarianism that occurs when a person is an unbeliever. Now I want to explain to you, well this is, maybe I, I just do it here, but there's more coming. Let me just open up this discussion for you. Some people use this ayah on one another 
based on scholarly differences. So I want you to understand, broadly speaking, that broadly speaking, to keep it simple and brief for the purposes of this course, there are three types of differences that can take place amongst people who read and understand and believe in Qur'an and acknowledge Sayyidina to be the last and final messenger and prophet. Number one is theological differences. They can have different views in aqidah. That would fall under the ruling of this verse. That is called firqa, right? So don't, wala tafadraku, do not fall into theological sects. Do not divide yourself theologically. Okay. Second way that you can understand, political differences, right? So don't divide the ummah in terms of politics. That they should be united in terms of how they feel the affairs of this earth should be managed and governed and how relations with non-Muslims should be treated and negotiated and managed and enacted. So that you can, not just politics, but we would just say affairs of this world. Mu'amalat, right? How should questions of economy, questions of society, questions of polity, basically the social sciences, right? Okay. Here also Allah Ta'ala wants that there should not be differences in terms of antagonisms. But when the ummah spreads so vastly to cover different cultures and different civilizations, different cultures and civilizations may find different ways to manage their polity, economy and society according to the teachings of Islam. That's why even when you had the vast Islamic empire under a khalifa, that khalifa was just a nominal figurehead for many, many centuries. And the real power and decisions about governance, especially questions of polity, economy, and society, were done by the local rulers, the emir of Khurasan, or the emir of vast territories within that empire. It was just matters of perhaps defense, and perhaps some matters of zakat, and tithe, and jizya, and other financial matters. You can say the Department of Defense and the Department of Budget was perhaps under the Khalifa, but otherwise you had what in today's terms we would call devolution of power, even in the Khilafah. And you may have different ways that you can manage that. Third thing is scholarly differences. Those scholarly differences that are not theological in nature, right? Scholarly differences are not in any way intended here, and scholarly differences are not viewed as tafarruq. They're not viewed as sectarianism. Let me give you one example. We have seen, and I certainly in my preparation for you have very much seen, that sometimes scholars of tafsir have different views regarding the meaning or interpretation of a particular verse, right? I give you an example today of Bakka, right? Why is Makkah Mukarramah called Bakka in Quran? This is not tafarruqu. There's no intent by Allah subhanahu saying that every single jamia, all of the mufassirun should unite on one view. That's not what's being said. Let's take hadith. So Imam Muslim, Rehmanullah, was a student of Imam Bukhari. And he writes an introduction to his sahih, severely critiquing, lambasting Imam Bukhari in one particular issue of hadith sciences. Right? For somebody to put this ayah and suggest that Imam Muslim is trying to do tafarruq, is creating sectarian divisions amongst hadith scholars that would be ludicrous. This is the realm of scholarship and academics. Just like that in Ijtihad and Fiqh, Imam Abu Hanifa and those people, scholars of Ijtihad who followed him, Imam Malik and those scholars of Ijtihad who followed him, Imam Shafi and those scholars who followed him, and Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal and those scholars who opted for his usul, and subsequent scholars who developed and refined and applied their usul, are not engaging in firqa. 
And it's very unfortunate that certain foundations and people today say this in Urdu, ye firqa wari. Ye jo Hanafi, Shafi, and Hamis firqa wari ko khatam karenge, and you're going to follow just hadith. Every single Hanafi and Maliki and Shafi and Hanbali in history of Islam follows hadith. It's an ilzam, a slander to suggest otherwise. It's also a misrepresentation of hadith, and that's another course for you one day, inshallah. It's a misrepresentation of the hadith and sunnah of the very Prophet ﷺ himself to suggest that it always leads to one singular legal conclusion, and therefore there is no need for ijtihad, that would be false. Unfortunately, then you have on the other end of the spectrum, reformists and modernists who take advantage of the plurality of opinion, right? And the first thing, they, the way they confuse the youth is they say, look, this isn't something that's 100% agreed upon. So if it's not 100% agreed upon, you don't have to do it. Right? So they'll find one person one day in history who wrote in one line in one book that said, maybe you don't have to do X. So in that way, that is also not allowed. Alright? Okay, more on these topics will come later. Maybe a little bit I would tell you is how do you know? Maybe I'll just tell you very quickly one of our favorite things. How can you decide how to follow, whom to follow? In scholastic differences. So I'm going to give you a few broad tips. This is what those of our university students would remember as knowledge and ideology. You want to follow the knowledge-based approach to Islamic scholarship, and you do not want to follow the ideology-based approach to Islamic scholarship. Now, you can listen to a recording on this. We have dealt with this at incredible length. Very quickly and very briefly, I'm going to do this for you. Number one, knowledge-based approach says you must follow ilm. You must follow knowledge and those who have knowledge. Ideology-based approach says you should follow aql. Think about it, read and listen and think and decide yourself on the basis of your own aql. This would not work in any system in the world. For example, engineering, I have an aql. Let's say I read a couple of engineering books and I design this building. I don't think Mariam Khala would have let me do that. She's going to give that to the ahli ilm. People who have knowledge of a field, we defer to them. We don't defer to somebody just to their akal. So now what we mean is ilm which has akal should be followed over that akal which doesn't have ilm. And there are a lot of people who apply their akal onto Qur'an, but they don't have ilm of Qur'an, ilm of tasir, ilm of hadith, ilm of sunnah. And you can't get that ilm, by the way, in a one-year or two-year diploma course as Sibini. Right? And I think it's a great injustice to Qur'an that students of Qur'an all of a sudden become teachers of Qur'an. In every educational system, the mi'ar for the student and the mi'ar for the teacher should be different. For example, if somebody at Lams does freshman economics, in sophomore year, they're not allowed to teach freshman economics. So similarly, if somebody does a one-year diploma course in Qur'an, doesn't mean they should be told by their teachers that they should do Dora Tafsir after the end of that year. The criteria should be no problem studying. But the criteria for being a student should be one thing, and the criteria for being a teacher should be something else altogether. Right? And in fact, even the junior won't be allowed to teach freshman economics. Isn't it? Even the senior won't be allowed to teach freshman economics. So different educational systems, every system will keep a gap between the knowledge that a person has versus the knowledge that a person is teaching. But if you suggest that a person can, you're so good. For example, and I tell you openly today, just on the basis of this course, none of you is qualified to teach this course. No way. <laughs> and any foundation and institute that tries to tell their students that on the basis of our teaching you Qur'an, and just that alone you can teach Qur'an, 
that is unfortunate. And the Quran doesn't need such khidmat. If indeed the Quran does need to be more widespread, but that has to be done properly. For example, primary schools, we need more primary education in Pakistan. But that doesn't mean I'm going to hire fifth graders to teach kindergarten. That would be ludicrous. No notwithstanding how much we need more primary schools in Pakistan, we will still fulfill that need by hiring people who are qualified teachers to teach in those primary schools. Otherwise, my Zainab can start teaching preschool. <laughs> right? Alright? Here, so ilm versus akal. Second thing that you have to look at is that the knowledge-based approach suggests that you must read you have to read and research and study and discuss with multiple teachers and multiple students. And then you can arrive at your scholarly opinion. No problem. The ideology-based approach says that I first have my idea first, my ideology, and then I will pick up and go to the library and research and see if there's anything that supports my ideology so I can get some nice footnotes for my ideological pamphlet. And when you guys read that pamphlet, you see the footnotes and you get impressed. What do you know? What do you know? Right? Number three. So you can summarize the second one that read first, decide later. And the other one says decide first, read later. Right? Third difference. Knowledge-based approach says that there may be other scholarly opinions that may be valid. As after going through this process of ilm and reading and researching, they realize that that vast pro- amount of knowledge, which is called Islamic learning, may actually result in multiple scholarly positions. But on the other side, the ideology-based approach says it's only me. I am right and everybody else is wrong. My ideology is correct and everybody else is wrong. Fourth difference is that the knowledge-based approach says, and this is a bit tricky, knowledge-based approach says that do not disagree with something until you understand it. Ideology-based approach says that do not agree with something until you understand it. It seems like the same thing as a big difference. Knowledge-based approach says that do not disagree with something until you understand it. Ideology-based approach says do not agree with something until you understand it. Now I'm going to give you an example of hadith. If you take an ideology-based approach understanding to hadith, don't, which would, would mean what? Don't agree with hadith until you understand them. Don't agree with the authenticity of hadith until you understand the process by which they were declared authentic. Then all of you would instantly have to stop believing in hadith because you have not studied the history of Hadith, the authenticity of Hadith, the compilation of Hadith, the fabrications that took place in Hadith, then the sciences of Hadith criticism and evaluation to separate out the fabricated Hadith from the authentic Hadith. You haven't studied that. So if I told you that don't agree with something until you understand it, you'd leave Hadith. The knowledge-based approach would tell you that don't disagree with something. If you want to leave Hadith, first study everything. Know who the muhaddithin were and what their work was and what they accomplished and what their methods were. And if you disagree with that after knowing it, then you're entitled to that position. And the same thing is true of fiqh. Don't disagree with Hanafi or Shafi or Maliki fiqh until you've understood it. And understanding is not one line or one hadith or one pamphlet. To understand it requires years and years of study. So in some, the knowledge-based approach creates a person of etimad, 
a person who has trust and dependence, and this group is called Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah. The people who accept their tafsir from the Mufassirin, accept hadith and its interpretations from Muhaddithin, and accept legal rulings from the Fuqaha and Mujtahideen without discrediting any single one of them. Even if they prefer Imam Muslim's definition of Sahih, they still love Imam Bukhari and still view his definition of Sahih as also valid. Alright? Okay. Last thing, unfortunately, is that the knowledge-based approach takes a long time. That's the fifth difference. <laughs> and the ideology-based approach is really quick. I can make you an ideologue in one hour. To make you an alim would take many years. Right? Would take many, many years. So unfortunately, what I've noticed in the English-educated upper-class elites of this country, who often come to Deen of Islam later, after their academic years, because of their sincerity and their enthusiasts, this is what I call them, enthusiasts, they're enthusiastic about Islam, so they'll go for the quick fix. Because they're not going to go back, they just spent their whole life becoming a doctor, they're not going to go back and become an alim. So the ideological way appeals to them more. They want quick understanding. Quick understanding is offered through ideology. Quick understanding is never the realm of academics and scholarship and proper classical Islamic learning. Alright? So that is my advice to you on the guideline. In terms of scholarly differences, which scholarship to follow, you should follow those scholars who are following a knowledge-based approach. In terms of theological differences, I have no qualms at all stating openly and clearly that Sunni Islam is the correct Islam. Right? And as far as political differences go, the Muslim Ummah right now is not in a position in any case yet to manage their polity and economy and society, so you need to first engage in capacity building, and that's another story for another time. Alright, so this was important because this issue of why are there differences, right, perplexes many, many people in this country and all over the world, many Muslims all over the world. Alright. Now look. What does Osmata want you to do? So I told you it's coming later. The second thing, which is a more positive way, instead of trying to discover and analyze different, be what Allah Ta'ala wants you to be. And what is that? Waltukun, and there should be. A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajeem, bismillah rahman rahim, waltukun minkum ummat, that indeed there should be from amongst you an ummah, an ummah within the ummah. And what is the role of the ummah within the ummah? Yad'una, now the group of the Muslim ummah should do what? Yad'una ilal khair, that they should invite people, number one, to khair. Number two, wayamaruna bil ma'roof, and they should enjoin and command the good and what is proper and what is virtue and instill it and install it and establish it. Wayanhauna, and they should discourage people. And if possible, prevent people and design a system that prevents people anil munkar from falsehood and evil and lies and abomination. Wa ula'ika and such an ummah humul muflihun will be the ones who are extremely successful. So don't be like those who split up into sects, number one. And then disputed and disagreed with one another, those sects. Again, clear proof. This ayah now applies to unbelievers. 
for anyone to suggest that we just follow hadith, don't be like those people who split up into Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Anbali, and they cite this ayah and even one or two, unfortunately in Islamic history, one or two otherwise great scholars and awliya also made this mistake and cited this ayah. You cannot use, I repeat again, you cannot use an ayah in Kalamullah that is definitively being used for unbelievers. You cannot use that for believers. Definitively being used for disbelievers proof. Adabun Adim is something in Quran that comes exclusively for unbelievers. So this ayah is actually talking about the Ahli Kitab that is split into sects of Jews and Christians. Wahtalafu and they are disagreeing with one another even after these clear ayat have come down to them and the Quran can settle and resolve their disagreements, but they're still disagreeing with one another. So it is a sin, a grave sin to use this ayah on people of scholarly differences. Alright? Now let's go back to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said at the top, an ummah. So there's a suggestion here then. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala realizes that not every single person of this ummah is going to be able to carry forth the prophetic mission. Here Allah ta'ala is guiding. Right now the Prophet is doing the dawah, right? In history, early history, in the initial history. When the Prophet passes away from this world, there's going to have to be a group that is going to do dawah. By the way, it's not any particular group. No single group can say that they alone are this group. There is no jamaat that alone is this group. And there will always be multiple, multiple ways of doing dawah. That's why Allah used it, ummah. Allah didn't say there should be a ta'ifa or a particular identifiable, discernible group from you. There should be a whole community of people. And there are many, many ways to do dawah. Dawah can be done through ilm, teaching Quran and Hadith, can be done by giving lectures on spirituality, can be done by traveling and meeting Muslim communities for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, can be done by many, many things. But the interesting thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions is the first thing they have to invite to is, is ilal khair. Only when people have been given that invitation, and it may even suggest that only when people have been brought to khair, then can you command them to do what is good. So you can't skip this step. There's another mistake people make. And we'll go straight to commanding them to be good. You can't do that. First, ilal khair, you must invite them that their theme is important. In other words, you must work on their hearts. You must invite them to their heart. When their heart is connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is khair. Then you can enjoin them on action. Sometimes people ask, that, how should I work on my friend or my family member? You can't work on them like that directly. You can't make your child pray. You have to try to bring them to those feelings that cause a person to pray. You have to bring a person to those emotions that lead to action. You cannot bring them directly to action. And you yourself and I myself and none of us came directly to action without that emotion. That emotion here is khair. So the first thing is to bring them to the feelings of Islam. Make them feel like iman. Make them feel that love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Once a person is a lover of Allah, it's very easy to tell them to pray. And if a person is not a lover of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can try every single way and even exceed permissible bounds and still you won't be able to make them pray. Not from their heart. Not from their heart. Second, why ya'maruna bil maruf wa yanhauna al-munkar. So this is, means a very important aspect of deen and a part of dawah. You cannot leave either of these things out in dawah either. And any group that comes up with a philosophy that we don't do yanhauna al-munkar, we only do ya'maruna bil maruf, that's also false. That's not the Quranic dawah. Right? Ya'manuna bil ma'roof. So, this is so important. Let me read to you some hadith 
about this. So you know clearly how important this is. First hadith is in Abu Dawood, Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Okay, the first hadith is in Abu Dawood, if an individual of a group does sin, and other members of that group could have prevented them from doing that sin, and they didn't do so, then Allah Ta'ala will send a punishment on those members of other, those members of the group in this world. This hadith is for believers. Punishment in this world. What does that mean? So here, first meaning is that actually, when those two fellows from Aus and Khazar started fighting, the other sahaba were just watching. The other Ansar just watched. Allah Subhanahu was upset that they should have helped one another. Right? They should have interceded, they should have done sulhah. And this hadith is saying, so this can apply to family also. If in the family a child falls into sin, and certain siblings or parents had the ability, maybe not to make that person a person of taqwa, but at least to prevent that child from sin, and they don't do so, they will be inflicted with a punishment in this world. And many people don't realize that. They don't realize that the reason I got the heart attack at 50 was because I didn't raise my child on deen. The reason I'm going for the quadruple bypass surgery at 53 is because I didn't raise my child on deen. The reason the mother is getting breast cancer at 45 is because I didn't raise my child on deen. This isn't necessarily, I'm saying this is a possibility. Don't get me wrong. Allah Ta'ala sends illnesses for many, many reasons. The converse isn't true. It doesn't mean everybody who got a heart attack means they didn't raise their children properly. I'm not saying that. But I'm showing you an example of a type of punishment that Allah Ta'ala can send on a person in this world. Alright? So that's one hadith, hadith in Tirmidhi. Nabi Kareem Sallallahu said that if you don't do this Nahi Anamunkar, you will get punished in this world. One way that they understand, by the way, these causes of punishment, is if you don't eliminate evil and eradicate evil from your society, that itself is your punishment. You will be living in a corrupt society. In a society where there's crime, there's injustice, there's poverty, there's unfair class manipulation. You could have eradicated these things with your own hands according to teachings of Quran and Sunnah, but you didn't. So that's your punishment. That itself could be the punishment. So there are many types of punishment. It means Allah Ta'ala wants us to do it, to realize that khair, to attain that khair, khair, to make that khair permanent on us. So this is a very important thing. Many of you have heard the deed that Ya'maluna bil maruf, that the that if you can change something, sorry, Nahil Munkar, that if you can change something, with your hand, change it with your hand. means if you can actually enact that change, if you have the power to enact change, enact it. If you are the head of an organization, you can actually change things that they're doing that is wrong, change it, or you are liable. If you can't actually enact it, change it with your hand. Then change it with your tongue means speak out against it. Cry out against it. Protest against it. Raise your voice against it. And if you can't even do that either, if you're not able to enact the khair, if you're not able to enact the maruf, the virtue, nor are you enabled to prevent the vice, and you are somehow rendered so weak and incapable that you can't even speak out for it or speak against it, then at least in your qalb, in your spiritual heart, you should feel love for that maruf and you should feel karaha, dislike. Never let yourself get desensitized to the vices in you or around you in your society. You should feel a dislike for it. Every time you see the Citibank billboard, you should feel sad. And many other things. Many other things. Many other things. That's the least of things. Least of things that go on in public in this society. 
Alright? So you should feel bad about it in your heart. And in your heart also means make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You see, Islam doesn't teach the religious person to sit there and say, Ye kitne be ki Islam doesn't teach you to pass comments. Islam teaches you to feel sad and to make dua for them. And to think if there's any way you can help and restore them to the haya of Sayyidatana And how to do that? First by doing dawa ilal khair. First by showing them the khair that is in deen, the beauty that is in deen, the wonder that is in deen, and invite them to that. Not just sit around and pass comments. Right? Okay. That remember that day on which certain faces will become white and certain faces will become black. What does it mean? That what is in the color will come on the wudge. What is in the heart? Iman is in the heart. That person's face will be white. White is not skin color. Remember that in Islam there is no racial thing that black. It means whiteness of nur. And the darkness means his zulm. It means will be bright, bright with the nude of imam. And some faces will be physically made blackened, like char grilled, not skin colored, right? Because of the zulm and the oppression of their unbelief. And as far as those whose faces will be blackened on that day, akafartum, did you disbelieve? the imanukum after you were had imam, fadukul adab. Taste that adab bima kuntum takfurun. Taste that very same adab that you just believed. You said there's no such thing as an akhirah. You said there's no such thing as a hellfire. Look at the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look at the way he's going to address such a person. You mocked me. You were sarcastic. You were an atheist and you mocked at believers. Hey, look at these people. They're bowing. Who are they bowing to? There's no God. Hmm? You spoke like that on this earth. Allah Akbar. This is Allah. Fadhukul adab. Chakku asadab. Taste it. Bima kuntum takfurun. Second meaning can be by means of which that you disobeyed. What is the sabab that's going to make you enter that adab? So ba can be sabab in the other sense. Taste that adab that you earn by means of all those things that you continually disbelieved in. Because again in those in study nahu kana and mudara comes for istimrat. To translate it with the full. Unfortunately the English translations don't do that for you. They don't bring the grammar into the translation. They just translate the words. By means of that which you continually used to disbelieve in. By means of each and every single thing that all of you continually disbelieved in. And for those people whose faces will be made full of nur on that day, that they will be inside the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now many commentators say this means Jannah. But the reality is Allah ta'ala could have said Jannah even if He is mentioning Jannah as His mercy, it's a feeling Allah Ta'ala wants to put that they will be ensconced and drowning in the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa which is something even greater than being present in a physical abode called Jannah. Right? They will be in the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Allahu Akbar. Can you imagine that? Not just in Jannah now. Akhirat is not just Jannah. It's to be drowning and existing and swimming. Hmm? Scuba diving. In the rahmah mercy of Allah in the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Allahu Akbar. Hum fiha khalidun. And they will always, always remain. Fi what? Fi rahmatillah. They will always be indwelling in the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tilka ayatullah. This is the sign, this is the verse, this is the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Natluha. That we recited. Uh, that we recited alayka to you, Nabiya Kareem Sassam, bil haq, with absolute truth. 
Allah does not intend zulm and injustice to anything in the universe. Means Allah Ta'ala wants all of the alameen to operate justly. Okay. This is also mentioned to the Ahl Kitab, but I've said to you many times that Islam is also not yet another firqa. Don't the Jews of Christians may hear this and say, Abtu Khudag Nay Firqa right? Jesus Christ doesn't think that you're getting another group. No, this is a continuity. It's a single path, not the A path of all the anbiya, a path of all the wahi, a path of all of the scriptures. Okay? To Allah subhanahu wa belongs absolute sovereignty and exclusive dominion over every single thing that lies in all the realms of above and every single thing that lies on this earth. And to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all matters will be, all matters and all affairs will be returned. Kuntum khayra ummatin, and indeed you are, and for us you should be and can be. But for Sahaba Ikram, you are, all of you, each and every one of you is khayra ummatin, the best ummah that has ever been brought forth for humanity. Obviously, the Prophet is the best Nabi. So, his ummah has the potential, and at least in his life was the best ummah. So that if you think that Sahaba are unbelievers, what are you going to do about this verse? Right? This verse is again showing that the Sahaba were the best ummah for all of humanity. Alright? And what is the khair, what is the greatness that they have, ta'muruna bil maruf? Because why were you best for humanity? Because you enjoined virtue upon humanity. You saved humanity and prevented them from deprivation. وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ And you did all of this in a state that you were believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So actually what Islam is saying, what all these other people think, you see the West thinks that they have the greatest system for humanity. Therefore they don't think it's unjust, they think it's absolute justice to spread democracy and spread this and spread that in order to do that, to be the sole superpower to do that. The Quran says the exact same thing. It's no different from their military strategy from those social sciences. That this is the best way. And this needs to be the superpower. And this needs to be spread all over the world as a form of justice to humanity. And if were, were the people of the book to have iman, in what now? What is the one thing they don't have iman yet? Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Qur'an which has been sent to him. That would have been better for them. Minimal mu'minun. So from amongst them there will be people. So here Allah Ta'ala is telling first Nabiya Kareem sallallahu that there will be people of them who can take iman. And also telling the Ahl Kitab but don't think you're all impervious. You won't be able to miss. Some of you are going to come this way. Telling those crooked and twisted rabbis and priests who try to prevent Jews and Christians from accepting Islam, you won't be able to do it. There will be some of you who believe. However, however the vast majority of them will be rebellers. They will rebel against this call and they will disbelieve. And that's true until this day. From the time of the Prophet up till today, the majority of Jews and Christians have not accepted Islam. Right? Okay. That they will never ever be able to harm you except a particular type of slight harm. Those of you who study Nahu, Adhan is Nakira. Right? That Tankira is coming in for Taqsis, a particular type, i.e. small amount of harm. It can also be coming for Taqlil, for slight harm. Alright. Well, in, okay, now you may think, right, that oh, you know, in certain places of the world they're causing great harm, right? In the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they can't take your iman. They haven't been able to do that. 
There's no Muslim country that they've been able to make unbeliever. They could take Korea and make a Christian. That's a separate thing. Okay? They haven't been able to take any of our countries and make us unbelievers. So the real harm, what they really wanted to cause is take us our iman away. That they can't do. That they can't do. They can give us a particular harm localized in time. Maybe conquest, maybe aggression, maybe occupation, maybe invasion. Alright? When you lukum. However, if you... Now, who is this, right? This means that if you, the khayr ummah if you are the khayr ummah and you are striving to be the khayr ummah and you are doing those things, then if they fight you, you will lu- if you uh, if they fight you, you will lukum, they will spurn. Adbad, they will turn on their backs. Literally, it means they will turn back on their backs. This is when they fight true mu'mini. Thumma la yunsurun, and then there will be no help that will come. Dhurbat alayhum and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed them in a state of disgrace. Ainama thukifu, wherever they may be found, illa bihablim min Allah, wahablim min nas, wabau bihadabim min Allahi, except due to a rope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may extend to them, i.e., bringing them back to Iman. Allah ta'ala doesn't put many of them accepting Iman later on even. Many later on Jews and Christians still accept Iman. Right? Or, wahablim min nas, this can either mean that due to some group of da'wah, they may come back. It can also mean the protectorate, the protected status of Ahl al-Kitab as dhimmis under the Islamic empire, that the nas, the people, will extend to them a state of honor. Right? The dhimmi status is a protected status, not a state of dhilla, but a state of sanctuary and sanctity. Waba'u, but in any case, but they return bi'ghadabim min Allah with the wrath from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَذِرْبَتَ عَلَيْهُمُ الْمَسْكَةِ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala maskana, Allah ta'ala has put wretchedness upon them. And again here, right, this doesn't mean that they're going to be the poorest countries of the world. It means wretchedness. It doesn't mean financial poverty. ذَلَكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ كَانُوا يَكْفُرُونَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ This, all this is because, the reason for this, is because they denied the verses of revelation sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they killed the prophets without justice. And all of this is also because of each and every matter in which they disobeyed. And they transgressed the limits. However, now after saying all this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that lest a person think, right, and Allah doesn't want to close the door on them. That Ahlul may be listening to this and say, it's over for us. Allah is saying, no, you're not all alike. There will be some of you except Iman. There will be some of you who come this way. That they are not all the same. Still, they're not all the same. Min Ahl Kitab, from amongst the Ahl Kitab, Ummatun, there will be a group, Qa'imatun, that is steadfast on truth. Yatluna ayatillah, and they recite the verses of revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ana al-layli throughout the night, bahum yastudun, and they're in a state of sajda, they're making prostration to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the people who became Muslims. These are referring to the Former Jew and Christian, Sahaba of Sayyidina Rasulullah, Yu'minuna Billahi, they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Wal Yawm al Akhri and the last day, Wa Ya'minuna Bil Maruf, and they also enjoin what is virtuous, Wa Yanhauna Anal Munkar, and they prevent from what is evil, Wa Yusariuna fil Khirat and they hasten to do good deeds. Some commentators have also taken that this is Allah Ta'ala describing what are those characteristics that will lie in Ahl Kitab that will enable them to have Imam. In other words, there were actually some good Christians and good Jews who were good people, who did have belief, who did enjoin virtue, who did prevent evil. 
and they will get the hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enter the deen of Islam. Ulaika min as-salihin, and such people will be amongst righteous people. وَمَا يَفْلُونَ Whatsoever they did, min khayrin, from good deeds, فَلَنْ يُكْفَرُوهُ They will not be denied it. Allah Ta'ala is telling them that don't think that if you accept Islam, all the good deeds that you did as a Jew and Christian will be void. No, whatever you did of khair, because you accept Islam, all of that will count as well. So if you thought Christianity was correct, and you used to go to church on Sundays, and then you accepted Islam, Allah Ta'ala will reward you for all those Sunday churches. Right? وَاللَّهُ alimum bil muttaqin, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing concerning His, those who fear Him. In other words, Allah ta'ala knows in His heart who really fears Him, so the God-fearing Jews and Christians will be given hidayah. Allah knows where is the taqwa, and He will send His hidayah on them, and give them tawfiq to accept deen of Islam. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Not that I don't have time to do that for you now, but there are many, many stories of certain Sahaba Ikram who were formerly Jew and formerly Christian and the stories of their conversion and you will find a common theme in them what is described in these ayat that they were good people they feared Allah they wanted to do what was right they stayed away from evil and when they discovered that one really was the Prophet they realized that the right thing to do was to accept him and they condemned their other Jews and Christians who were preventing people from accepting him alright okay إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا indeed those who believe so who aren't like that who aren't the good ones, who remain steadfast on the disbelief, لَن تُغْنِيَ anhum أَمْوَالَهُمْ وَلَا أَوْلَادُهُمْ That their wealth and properties and possessions, neither their children, descendants, progeny, will ever avail them. لَن تُغْنِيَ anhum Will never ever avail them مِنَ اللَّهِ شَيْئَا Against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in any way whatsoever. وَلَاءَكَ أَصْحَابُ النَّارِ Indeed, they will be the companions and intimate friends of Jahannam. فِيهَا خَالَدُونَ They will dwell therein forever. Now the example of those people, and we did this before, Allah Ta'ala is mentioning the example of those unbelievers who die in unbelief, what will happen to their deeds that they did in this world. And specifically Allah Ta'ala here is mentioning, if you were to use a contemporary English term, the philanthropy and charity of non-believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What will that amount to in the akhirah? Just so you know, Allah Ta'ala rewards them for that in this world. So maybe they gave a million dollars to eradicate poverty. In exchange for that, Allah Ta'ala didn't give them any heart attacks and let them live till 80. In exchange for that, Allah Ta'ala gave them a happy married life and didn't end up in divorce. In exchange for that, Allah Ta'ala may give them many blessings in this world. And that makes sense because they also did it for this world. They don't believe in Allah they don't believe in an afterlife. It's an atheist who gives charity. He's also not doing it for anything in the hereafter. Right? So here Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is saying, as far as what they do in this world, so mathalu ma yunfikuna fi hadihil hayatid dunya, so the likeness of that which they spend in this life of this world is like what? Kamathale rihin is like a blowing wind. Fi hasilun literally means a blowing wind which has some ice in it. Means a cold blizzard, a cold blizzard, right? Or a wind chill, right? Cold currents of will. Asabat hartha common, and that cold, chilly, icy wind storm, if you will, reaches the crops or fields of a particular nation and community. Dalamu anfusahum. What was the nature of that community? That kaum, they were wronging their own selves by adopting kufr. Fa'ahlakathu. So that icy wind, when it reaches it, it completely destroys their crop. It can also mean completely destroys that kaum, and it can mean it completely destroys their crop. What does it mean? So they had vast fields, which is their works in this deed, right? 
But when they die, that's like the icy wind, and the icy wind then eradicates all their crops. They stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, having done nothing for his sake, nothing in his name, and having had no belief in him, they will stand in front of him alone. And don't think that Allah subhanahu wa is being unjust to them, right? Don't think, well, that's unfair, he gave so much money. Allah is saying, don't think like, anticipating, right? With the secular progressive liberal mind. And Allah subhanahu wa has not been unjust to them in any way whatsoever. But rather they themselves have oppressed, have been wrongdoing to themselves. By choosing to adopt kufr. Alright. Means they themselves lost the reward in the Akhirah by choosing to disbelieve in the Akhirah. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la tattakhidub. Okay, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la tattakhidub bitanatam min dunikum la yalunukum khabala. Okay, here the sponsor is addressing the believers that don't take, similar thing we did before, now there's the word bitana. We did oliyah before, right? Bitanatan, don't take his intimate confidence. This is what it is. If you're saying confidence, don't take into intimate niji. Apne nijme. I don't know if that's how you would say. Don't take as confidence or intimate uh, friends min dunikum other than your own selves. Other than believers it means. Other than your fellow believers. La yalunukum. Why? Because they will not fail. La yalunukum khabala. They will not fail to ruin you. Having intimate confidants from outside the believers will certainly result in some type of ruin. What do? And they yearn and they love. Ma anittum. They love for that which will cause you suffering. Kad badatil baghda'u. And indeed, their hatred has manifested min afwahihim through their mouths. And they've said spiteful words to you. However, وَمَا تُخْفِي سُدُورُهُمْ أَكْبَرُ But what they, the hatred they harbor for you in their hearts, they conceal and harbor for you in their hearts, Akbar is even greater than what they say. This is a general ayah, by the way, for you should know. This is human nature. If somebody says one sentence bad about you, it means they, what they harbor for you in their heart is much, much more intense. And even now more generally, that what is in the sadr is always more than what is in the tongue. Because expressions are connected to emotions. And the expression that is born of an emotion, the emotion is always more intense than that expression. So if they said one kalima of hasid against you, right? That's what Allah says, the hasidin have shar. I mean, it's coming inshallah on the last day if we reach it this year, right? The shar of the hasidin who have hasad because of the extreme evil that they have. لَكُمُ الْآيَاتِ And then we have made clearly clear to you the ayat, these verses, in kuntum taqilun, so that you may become a person of a saying, ha antum. See, see you, ulahu. That, you know, how would you translate this? That you should see. See that, look at you. You are those people. Tuhibbunahum, who love them. Walayuhibbunakum, and they don't love you. It's clear what I'll say. That you love them, but they don't love you. They will be disloyal to you. Watu'minuna bil kitabi kullihi. And each and every one of you should, and, and you love them in such a state that you actually believe in the entire book. This can have two meanings. Number one is that uh, this sort, you can relate this to two things. First relation, la yuhibbunakum wa tu'minuna bil They don't love you, even though you believe in the whole book. You know, this Ahl Kitab should have actually loved you because you were the real Ahl Kitab. You believe in the entire scriptures. They still don't love you. First, second meaning it has is that you love them 
What's the matter with you? Tuhibbunahum, you love them. وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْكِتَابِ كُلِّهِ And even though you believe in the whole book, what does that mean? That number one, so you've heard these warnings that you shouldn't love them. And number two, if you really know and believe the book, you would then be so overwhelmed by Qur'an that you would only love those people who also believed in this book. Right? You can't deny you say in Urdu, جو تیرا نہیں وہ میرا نہیں. Right? So you can say that about Qur'an. <laughs> say that about Qur'an. You have had the whole Qur'an and they deny this Qur'an. How could you love them? Allahu And look, Allah Ta'ala is saying, let me show you even more the deception. When they meet you, they say we believe. And when they seclude themselves and they retreat and they become alone, what do they do? Allah Literally means they bite their fingers in, in spite at you from anger and rage. They bite their fingertips and they do this. Like, how can we get rid of these people? That's like the hasad. The hasad, right? Literally, that's what it means. They bite their fingertips in spite, uh, against you in spite and due to their rage. So, Allah, look what Allah says. Kul, say to them, Mutu bighaydikum. Die on your fury. Let, let death overcome you in the state of fury. Inna Allah alimum bidatis sudur. And Allah subhanahu wa all knowing about what you harbor in your breast. In tamaskus, okay. Allah's next time that Allah says, if any good thing, it's very, in tamsaskum hasanatun, that if any good thing should happen to you, tasuhum, it vexes them, it perplexes, it gets them really angry. When tusibkum sayyatun, and if any hardship and evil falls you, befalls you, Yafrihu, they rejoice and become joyful biha on the fact that some hardship and evil has befallen you. Wa in tasbiru. So what should you do? You should have sabr. If only you were to be complete endure and have patience and fortitude. Wa tattaku and fear Allah Subhanahu La yuzulukum kaiduhum shay'a that their conniving and their cunning cannot harm any of you in the slightest of ways. Inna Allah bima ya'maluna muhit and Allah Subhanahu's muhit he encompasses every single thing bima ya'malun what they do. So this is a general lesson then for all of us, right? Who Anybody who feels at any point that the Muslims are worried or threatened or afflicted, Allah Ta'ala is saying here. And they think that maybe the way is to entreat with them and to win them over and to fall in love with them. So that's not going to work. What's going to work is sabr. What's going to work is taqwa. And what's going to handle them is Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Allah is all-encompassing what to do. وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ Okay, now Allah Ta'ala is saying the Prophet that when you set forth in the morning from your family, تَبَوِّئُ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ مَقَائِدَ لِلْكِتَالِ Ajeeb Manzar. When you set forth in the morning, O my beloved Messenger Wasallam, from your family, to do what? To brief the believers on the positions that they should take up in battle. وَاللَّهُ سَمِيُّ الْعَلِيمُ And Allah Ta'ala was all listening and all knowing of what you did. Here, min ahthika, it's ijma of all muhaddithin and murrikhin, that... The house that Sayyidina Rasulullah exited from was the house of Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. But this is also an establishment in Qur'an al-Kareem that Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala is the ahl of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu And ahl actually refers to all of the ummahat al-mu'mineen, all of the azwaj al-mutahharat, all of the noble wives of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu and all of the progeny of the Prophet as well. Alright, here now is going to come mention of Battle of Badr and Battle of Uhud.
Okay? First of all, so the ayats are going to remind the Sahaba Ikram of Battle of Badr, but then it's going to be, and you're going to have more mention of Battle of Uhud. So just so all of you remember, right, the Prophet Sallam and Sahaba Ikram lived for 13 years in Makkah Mukarramah. For the last two years of that, they were faced with a boycott and it encircled in a particular valley, then they migrated to Medina Manawra. Then, when they were in Medina Manawra, in the second year after the Hijrah, the Battle of Badr took place. In the Battle of Badr, the Mushrikeen of Makkah Mukarramah sent their armed forces to kill slay the Prophet ﷺ and eradicate Islam from the face of this earth. Sahabi Kram were victorious in the story that victory is coming down these ayat. They were able to kill 70 of the unbelievers were killed in that battle and 70 were taken captive. Those 70 that were taken captive were ransomed and the money that was earned from that ransom was used then to make the Muslims stronger in case they needed to defend themselves again. Sure enough, the very next year in the month of Shawwal in 3rd Hijri, the unbelievers again marched forth from Makkah Mukarramah to again try to battle Islam and they came extremely equipped, extremely armed and 3,000 in their number. When the Prophet heard through his scouts that this is what has happened, to be accurate in history, Sayyidina Rasulullah himself felt that we don't need to march out like we did, we marched out and met them in Badr last time. We don't need to march out and meet them. We will defend them right here from Medina Manorah. Many other Sahaba also had the same opinion. And it so happened that Abdullah bin Ubay, who was the leader of the Munafikun, also gave the same opinion. However, there were some Sahaba who had not been Sahaba at Badr. And they wanted to go out forth and they were upset that how dare these people think they can march out against us. And they felt that we should march out against them, number one, to display our strength, to show that we are strength, let them not be emboldened. We may think that we're staying here to fortify our defenses at home, they may think we are scared. And part of military strategy is emotions. Any of you who played competitive sports, you know that as well. Part of it is emotion. Part of it is confidence, who thinks they're going to win, and part of it is how you view your enemy or let's say the competitor, do you think he's going to win or do you think he's going to lose? If you think you're going to win and you think he's going to lose, sometimes those emotions turn the tide of the battle. So this was the military strategy of these Sahaba, that they wanted to meet them out. Sayyidina Rasulullah listened to these views, his own view was that they should stay, but he listened to these different views and then eventually he did, he decided, he decided that he will march forth. When he marched forth, and what he did was he went back home, right? And he put on his... It wasn't really armor. I mean, you will say he put on his libas of jihad. Whatever type of armor or things he had, maybe a belt to hold the scabbard for the sword, maybe a shield. It wasn't like the all-metal armor that later they had in medieval Europe, right? But he wore his armaments, put it that way. He came out clothed in his armaments, whatever they were. At that point, then again, some Sahaba said that okay, they tried again, right? And not in a bad way. They would keep going back and forth as to what is the best strategy, right? So that group who felt, the, genuinely felt, not the monophic yet, who genuinely felt the better strategy was to stay back, they tried a last time to the Prophet. They also said, maybe we should reconsider and stay back. And then he told them that it does not befit a Prophet, that when he is strapped on his armaments, with the need to go forth in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it does not befit a Prophet now to turn back. Allahu Akbar Kabira. One can imagine that Allah Akbar. One can just imagine Sayyidina Rasulullah standing at the porch of his humble dwelling ajeeb, hmm? clothed like that. So then Khair Sahaba went forth. The Mount of Sahaba was 1,000. When they started going a little bit away, Abdullah ibn Ubay, who was the leader of the Munafikun, and had also been of the opinion, but for the wrong reasons, that they should stay back. He said we should stay back. This is a mistake. And 300 
total including him, stayed back. These are all manafikun. Because if you think about it, when you stay back, you're trying to suggest that this strategy is going to be unsuccessful. Alright. How does this establish your nifaq? If you love the Prophet ﷺ, you would say that all the better I better be there to defend my Prophet ﷺ. Because he's leading the army into a battle that according to my military strategy is not successful, so I better make sure I'm there to defend him. Second, that if you think it's unsuccessful, what do you mean? They will be unsuccessful. If they're going to be unsuccessful, chance that Sahaba certainly will die and will be shaheed and the Prophet may be shaheed. How could you turn back? You cannot, I'm trying to impose upon you, just illustrate for you rather, how enormously horrible and unfeeling and only a monophic to make this decision to turn back. You understand now, right? It's not so, some people say, that no, those who had the, those sahabu whose military, I want to clear this up for you. Some people try to make zaman sahabana, those sahabu whose military strategy was that they should stay back, they stayed back. They would never do that. Even if it was their military, even if they were the genuine, so I'm trying to separate two groups here. There were munafikun who wanted to stay back, and there were some sahaba who felt as a strategy, one should stay back, but once the Prophet marched, they went with the Prophet The only ones who stayed back were the munafikun. Right? Okay. So, okay, so they finished the battle of Yusuf. Then when they went to Mount Uhud, they, they set up their battle lines such that the mountain of Uhud was on their back. Right? But there was a pass of the mountain and there was like a little hill that guards that pass. So Sayyidina Rasulullah made a sahaba, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Jubair in charge of that pass and gave him a contingent of 50 archers. And their job was to protect anyone from encircling around and attacking the Muslims from that pass. And the Prophet gave them explicit instructions, what, well, instructions let's say, but quite clear instructions that you could, should not come down from this pass. Okay, so the battle happens, unbelievers come, the Sahaba come well prepared, they engage in battle, they're winning, they're winning, they're defeating, and then basically as you say, the tide of the battle turns, right, and unbelievers even start retreating, start retreating in defeat. So not when the tide of the battle turned, only when those Sahab in the past saw them retreating in defeat, they thought this signaled the closure of the war. Okay, now what's written in the books, and people misunderstand this when they read in Urdu, that they came down off the pass, they came down off the pass, to help in the collection of the booty. Now some people suggest, the Billah, that Sahaba Kram had some love of wealth. This is ludicrous because the wealth that is collected, the spoils of battle, goes into Baytul Mal as a collective and then is distributed later by the Prophet to Sahaba. So to suggest that there was some Sahaba standing on that pass, that hill, guarding the pass, and he saw oh, there's an unbeliever running back to Makkah and he's got a nice sword, I like it, let me go down and get it from him. Asini. It's not like that. Alright? What was happening, however, was that those who were fighting in the battle, they were chasing them. And as it were in the retreat, when the unbelievers not all were unretreating. Some of them started to retreat and defeat. Others were still fighting. The ones who were fighting, the Sahabah kept fighting, the unbelievers who were fighting, and they started chasing the ones who were retreating. And yes, the Sahabah were so financially straightened that they needed to get the weapons. They did need that. It wasn't some personal thing. What does a soldier carry with them? He's not carrying some type of thing that you're going to put in your house. It was for the weapons. Because they thought, look, they've come a second time. They're probably going to come a third. And they do. There's so many more battles that go on. Right? 
So yes, sabakam were poor and they needed. So that's perfectly fine. That if you're so, if you're not, if you're poor and you can't arm yourself because you're poor, and there's a group of people that always attack you, if you can manage to capture their gun for next time when they come to you, that's a perfectly wise thing to do. So that's why these sahaba said that now we should go to rout them. Because when we rout them, they will drop all their weapons and free, unencumbered, so they can run away from us. This is the feature of battle in those days. When you drop your weapons, you can run faster and person is chasing because he wants to fight you, he still got his weapons. That was the purpose. So let us go so we can rout them completely so that they completely flee and drop all their weapons. That's what happened. When that happened, there was a brilliant military strategist. And he probably regrets this day probably the most in his whole life. Because later he becomes Sayyidina Khalid ibn Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. But at this battle of Uhud, he was an unbeliever and brilliant military strategist. So he saw this and he saw what was happening. And I feel that he even knew because a great warrior knows the hearts of other warriors. So he probably saw the whole thing coming. He knew that these Sahaba on that mountain pass are great warriors. And when they see that so many of us are treating they're going to want to come down to rout us entirely so that we will flee leaving our weapons. So he took a group of his people. And he just waited for that to happen. And then when they encircled around now to the rear of the camp, then they were able also, not saying the Khalid himself, Allah Ta'ala protected him from this, but one of his people who had been in that encirclement, they were able to reach Sayyidina Rasulullah himself where he was in battle, and they were able to strike a blow upon him. Such that the teeth of the Prophet he lost some of his teeth, and he received many injuries to his face, and he bled. Now one of those group, they were so excited, as a warrior would be, they were so excited that they reached the leader, the Prophet so they started yelling out prematurely that we've killed the Prophet, we've killed the Prophet, in their excitement, that look, right? And this is a great lesson Allah Ta'ala showed, that if you don't follow the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam exactly, perfectly, completely, right down to the last drop, the letter of it, the spirit of it, the love of it, the murad of it, what he intends from it, right? And then you will have less of a success, less of a victory, less of falah in this world and the next. Wallahu samiyun alim that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all listening and all knowing about everything that you do. It means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was extremely aware about the preparations and strategies and what was in the mind of the Prophet concerning this battle of Uhud. Now this I had explained also that there were different views. One view was that it would be better to go one view was that it would be better to stay in Medina Manawra and defend Medina Manawra when that enemy army which is encamped near Uhud, when they decided to attack Medina, better to defend them from Medina Manawra. This was Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam's own view. And he had seen some dreams. Some of the books of Tafsir mentioned that he saw some dreams that suggested as well that this was better. Nonetheless, and there were other Sahaba who also felt that it would be better to stay in Medina Manawra. As we mentioned before, there was a group of Sahaba who felt it would be better to venture forth, especially those who accepted Islam after Badr, or those who were new Muslims, and that story is going to come later, and did not actually go out in Badr and regretted that decision. So they were very eager to go and march forth and meet the enemy at Uhud. 
Next I is and then we mentioned to you that when the Prophet decided to move forth and there was a person Abdullah bin Ubay who was the Imam of the Munafiqun. And it was his view that they shouldn't go forth, they should stay at Medina Manora. So initially, and this is, shows you the nifaq, nifaq means a person who is two-faced. And sometimes they are so two-faced that they can never actually make a single manifest decision. So initially him and his followers, which number 300, did march out with the Prophet but a particular stage on the way from Medina Manora to Uhud, which is a very small journey. Those of you who have been there would know that the journey from Medina Manora to Uhud, even on foot, is a very small journey. At some point on the way, after taking very small amount of journey, Abdullah ibn Ubay and 300 people total, including him, decided to pull back. So this left 700 believers and 3,000 force, according to the scouts of the unbelievers. At this point then, from amongst the 700, there were two groups. So this is what's coming. That from the 700 of you that remained, when there were two groups, and Hamad can mean either they're worried or they're intended. So you can take it in both ways. When they intended due to their worry now, that they should also leave. Right? They intended to leave or to fly. You could also say maybe desert. Who were these two groups? So these two groups were two tribes of the Ansar, the Banu Salama and the Banu Haritha. These were not Munafikun. They just grew a bit hesitant. They got a bit scared now that first we were a thousand against three thousand. And now there are seven hundred against three thousand. So their resolve was weakened. Their resolve was weakened. So what happened and when they resolved weakened, Wallahu waliyuhuma, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was their protector, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected them and shored them up and put in their heart a firmness and resolve. So the Banu Salma and the Banu Haratha regained their resolve and they remained in that 700 and they continued the march with the Prophet with absolute, full and firm resolve. وَلَاللَّهِ فَلْيَتَوَكَّلَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ And indeed, only and only on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, i.e. not on numbers, not on weapons, not on strategy, but only and only on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فَلْيَتَوَكَّلَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ Do the true believers really trust and rely and depend upon. وَلَقَدْ نَصَرَكُمَ اللَّهُ بِبَدْرٍ And indeed, undoubtedly, certainly remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helped you in Badr. وَأَنْتُمْ adilla, And you were weak. You should know, by the way, in the Arabic line, adilla is plural of dhalil. The Arabic word dhalil doesn't mean what the Urdu word dhalil means, which means abase and terrible and lowly. It can also mean weak, simply in a neutral way. So Allah Ta'ala is saying that we helped you in the battle of Badr and you were weak, militarily then, فَاتَّقُوا Fear Allah SWT لَأَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ So that you may be people who are properly appreciative of Him. This also teaches us, by the way, that Shukr means taqwa. So a person says, Nami alaka bar shukr karta. And they don't have taqwa, wa alaka shukr nikarne. Wa zaban hilare. If they say that I'm grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and by, they, by that they think that shukr gratefulness means just to say that sentence, Allah ta'ala is saying, no, taqwa. Taqwa is the way to be grateful. Right? Even don't we say grateful son is an obedient son? Right? So grateful abd is an obedient abd to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By the way, let me just say, because I've done this once or twice before, in our deen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's relationship with Abd is not father and son relationship. 
But I just sometimes use that relationship or other relationships to, as an analogy to make you understand emotional feelings, right? The same way you emotionally feel that being grateful to someone means obedient to them, the same way you should emotionally feel that being grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means to be obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what Allah ta'ala is saying in Quran. And who is he saying it to originally? He's saying it to Sahaba Ikram. He's saying it to Badri Sahaba, actually. Initially right here. So if Badri Sahaba are commanded with taqwa, and for them they can't just do shukr other than taqwa, then there's no way any one of us should think that we have some way of doing shukr which doesn't consist of taqwa. It تَكُولُ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ أَلَيْنْ يَكْفِيكُمْ That when you said, Prophet ﷺ, in Badr to the believers, that is, is it not sufficient for you? أَنْ يُمِنْدُكُمْ رَبُّكُمْ That your Rabb should help you بِثَلَاثَةِ أَلَافٍ مِّنَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ That Allah Ta'ala should help you with 3,000 angels. Now here you see for the first time Sayyidina Rasulullah not saying that Allah will help you or that our Rabb will help us رَبُّكُمْ This is not the way that there was discussion between Musa and Bani Israel that they didn't believe. Here Sayyidina Rasulullah said, Rabbukum, trying to show them that look, Allah is your Rabb, He's going to help you. It was not in a threatening way or in a scolding way or castigating way. Here Nabi Yisrael said, look, don't you, isn't it enough for you that your Rabb means our Rabb, but Nabi Yisrael said your Rabb to make them feel it more personal. Allah Ta'ala is your Wali, He's your caretaker. You're going out in the path of Allah in this battle of Badr. And He's going to help you with 3,000 angels Munzaleen who were sent, or sent specially for this purpose. Alright. But ah, surely, in tasbiru, if you were to patiently endure and have fortitude in that, right? Watattaku, and have taqwa, wayatukum min fawdihim, and if they were to attack you min fawdihim hada, immediately, yumdidkum rabbukum bi khamsati alaf, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would help you with 5,000 angels, Musawwimeen who are marked in battle that they, you would know that they are yours. First lesson this tells us obviously is Allah SWT special help comes on those true believers when they're engaged in this ultimate act of jihad, peace of Allah, purely and exclusively for the sake of the deen of Islam. Second thing you know, realize that Allah Ta'ala's help comes through sabab. You see Allah SWT could have helped in some other type of miraculous way. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to use the sabab of the angels. And the commentators mentioned that in Badr, the angels came in a type of human form, in a human likeness, and physically engaged in battle. Alright? The musawwimin, uh, musawwimin meant marked. There are many things commentators have written, so I will just tell you the statement of one of them, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu who is known amongst Sahaba is Imam Mufassirin, he said the way the angels were marked was that they wore white turbans which had tails in the back. Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, known to be that Sahaba who had the greatest knowledge of tafsir. What was the mark of the angels so Sahaba could know that these are on our side? <laughs> they were white turbans which had tails. Nay someday. Tails in the back. Allah I read it in tafsir, I'm sharing it with you. Alright. Okay. 
did not do this, he literally did not make this help, did not do all of this, except as a glad tiding for you. You know, that Allah Ta'ala's help has come. You were waiting for the help of Allah Ta'ala, wanted you to be happy that Allah Ta'ala's help did come. And that by means of this, your heart would have itminan in this battle. That wheresoever and wherefrom can help be found except from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Al-Aziz Almighty and Al-Hakim. This is a very important ayah, verse number 126. Help can be found only from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why did you do this? لَيَقْتَعَ tarfan. لَيَقْتَعَ literally means to cut. Tarfan means a fringe. So what it literally means, and they would have translated for you in other ways in English, to cut a fringe means that those particular 70 unbelievers of Badr who were killed in that battle were some of the real leaders of the Quraysh, who were the biggest instigators and protagonists of the unbelievers against the Muslims. So literally means to cut off a fringe from those who disbelieve. You can say to destroy a part of them, right? Oh! Or it was to yak bitahum, to disgrace them or to crush them. Alright. Fayankalibu ha ibin and they returned, they returned back to Makamakarama losers. You could say more fancy as they returned back thwarted. They returned back thwarted, they returned back losers. Laysa lakam min al amri shayun. Okay, the occasion of revelation of this, and again the Urdu tafsirs will make it sound like but there's no bad dua. What happened was is that when this happened to Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam, that he was injured, his teeth fell out, and blood came to his face, so he made this statement. And if you listen to it, you can decide whether you would call this Baddu or not. His statement was simply this, he turned to Allah and said that how can that nation be successful, how can that community ever be successful, I ever get guidance, when they draw blood from the face of the very Nabi that was sent to them. That's it. He asked a question. He turned to Allah Subhanahu in his sadness and exasperation and asked Allah Subhanahu this question, that how can that community ever be successfully guided whom draw blood from the face of the very Nabi who was sent to them to call them to Allah? That's not but dua, right? So don't make that mistake in Urdu. When the Prophet said that Allah Ta'ala responded, لَيْسَ لَكَ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ شَيْءٌ Know that you have no share in this. In other words, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meant is that they can be guided. And they were. You will see later that after Fatih Makkah, some of the unbelievers who were on the wrong side in Battle of Uhud, such as Ikrama bin Abi Jahl, Abu Sufyan, Hinda, Washi, major, major, major people, they became many. They became many. Right? So it means that Allah ta'ala's hidayah is so vast that even those people who spurned the Prophet initially, who physically attack him initially, and attack his sahaba initially, even they, it's still possible for them to get guidance. Alright? Okay. You have to think that the Prophet was feeling this emotionally as well, because you see, he viewed the people of Mecca as his community, and as the ones that he was most initially asked to call to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he was already so sad that they didn't accept him, then he had to come to Medina Manorah. Then he was sad that now they attack him in the Badr. Then he was sad now again they attack him in Uhud. And now they're going so far to physically injure me. So how am I going to get them to believe when they, this is how they view me? That's what it was an emotional statement. It wasn't any type of Baddu'a. 
Far be it to say, make a bandhu on all of you know, after Taif, what happened. You didn't make any bandhu. I made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And maybe one day, one of them will have hidayah. But here he was so emotionally hurt by the fact that they attacked him with such viciousness that he even lost some, you can say, that hope he had in Taif for the people of Taif, that maybe it's over for Makkah That's what he was thinking. Alright? Okay. So Allah Ta'ala is saying that لَيْسَ لَكَ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ شَيْءٌ That you have, you Prophet don't have any shay, you have nothing, no control مِنَ الْأَمْرِ over this matter. Oh, and oh means, here means whether, doesn't mean or. Whether Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala repents to them, I accept their tawbah. Or whether يُؤَذِّبُهُمْ فَإِنَّهُمْ ظَالِمُونَ Or Allah Ta'ala punishes them, for indeed they are unjust oppressors and transgressors. Alright. وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ And to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala belongs each and everything that lies above and everything that lies on the earth. يَغْفِرُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ And Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala can forgive and decree His forgiveness for whomsoever He and He alone wills. وَيُؤَذِّبُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ And Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala can punish and decree His punishment for whomsoever He alone wills. وَاللَّهُ But which of the two is most likely to happen? Ajeeb. Ishara Allah Ta'ala gives here. Wallahu ghafoorul raheem. Allah Ta'ala could have said after this, Wallahu shadeedul ikab. Could have said that. What did he say? Wallahu ghafoorul raheem. Allah Ta'ala could have even said, Wallahu ghafoorul raheem, wa shadeedul ikabi al zalimin. He could have even said both of them again. Right? He could have mentioned both sets of attributes, the set that deals with the ones that he forgives and the set that deals with the one he punishes. Allah Ta'ala was showing what's ghalib in him. If it was up to him entirely, if only these people wouldn't do their zulm. Wallahu ghafoor rahim That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving, all merciful. Alright, now we begin something about interest. I've spoken to you in detail about interest earlier when it came. So I think now what we have to do is we have to work at full speed. Alright? I'm going to try inshallah, maybe with this to go at even faster speed. And I can't entirely do that ever. So let's try and just force myself. Okay. We're going to hit fast speed now, inshallah. Because a lot of these things that are coming, we've discussed them in detail. I'm going to try, inshallah, to finish Surah Al-Imran today. Ya Yuhal. I'm minus 10 in both eyes. So even with glasses, but still, it's a strain on the eye sometimes. And these are quite small. All right. Alright, this we've done for you before. You believe, do not consume interest. Do not engage in interest, compounding it many times over. Fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that you may become successful. And fear that fire which has been prepared for the disbelievers. Alright? Here Allah Ta'ala is giving kafirin that is prepared for disbelievers. What a tragedy it would be that you would enter that which has been prepared for disbelievers by way of your interest. Right? For example, you would feel, let's say you're a student and I told you that I'm putting you in the school for, I'm not using this example to be mean. I'm just trying to show you the emotion. I use examples to show you in ways that you understand what is that emotional feeling that Allah Ta'ala is trying to create in a person. So imagine if I put you in a school for those who are mentally disabled. You say, but it's not for me. You say, that's for the mentally disabled. But I say, you misbehave so much in class, you're like them. <laughs> right? You misbehave so much in class, you have so little self-control, you're like them. 
You would say this is extreme. You'd feel so embarrassed. So that's what Spantel is saying. That look, why do you, you're a chibale mu'mino, you're a believer, why do you want to go and do the sin of interest that's going to put you in a place that is actually prepared for kafri? It's not even supposed to be for you. That's what Allah Ta'ala is saying here. وَإِدَّتْ لِلْكَافِرِينَ وَطِيُوا اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَ عَلَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ And obey Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and obey Sayyidina Rasulullah You will need to do both. لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ So that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's mercy may descend upon you, may be amongst those who drown and receive in that mercy. وَصَارُوا إِلَى مَغْفِرَةٍ مِّن رَبِّكُمْ And you should hasten and do everything you can to receive the forgiveness from your Rabb. وَجَنَّةٍ And to try to get the Jannah. The expanse of which samawat wal ard, the jannah, expanse and range of jannah, covers all that lies above in this earth below. And jannah is what o iddat lil muttaqin. Here Allah didn't say o iddat lil mu'minin, right? It would have the the match would have been o iddat lil kafirin for jannah and o iddat lil muttaqin for jannah for jannah. Why? Because those who get jannah initially without having to go through jannah are muttaqin. Muttaqin are those who never set foot in jannah. And there will be some category of mu'mineen. They're not kafirin, but they're not mutakin either. They're sinning believers, non-practicing believers, who don't make tawbah of their sins and over their failure to practice. They will have to first go to Jahannam, and they will, then they will go into Jannah. Very quickly, Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned in a hadith this process. So that in, on the Day of Judgment, there will be some shafa'ah. Right? Then people will enter into Jannah, and some people enter into Jahannam. Then, and it doesn't mention, but after a long period passes, Allahu Alam, how many years? Maybe millions, billions, trillions of years, Allah knows best. Then Allah Ta'ala will ask all of the Ahl Jannah, that okay, I want all of you to look inside Jahannam, and see is there anyone in that Jahannam that you recognize that they ever had even the slightest drop of Iman, I'll take them out from Jahannam and put them in Jannat now. Because they've been punished for their sins and failures to maybe follow up on their imam. Right? So all of the people in Jannah will say, okay, Allah Ta'ala, I know that one, and he had one, right? Everyone will be done, right? He taught me alums, he was a, a Mulvi, right? Then when all of them come out, then Allah Ta'ala will ask them again, is one like anyone else you recognize inside? All of Ahl Jannat will say no. That, Ya Allah, there's no one. If someone even had the remotest trace of iman, we pointed them out to you. That we knew of, right? That Allah Ta'ala will take out two entire groups, additional groups from Jahannam. So the people of Jahannam will say, Ya Allah, who are these people? So Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will say that they had such a small atom of iman, and they so completely failed. I'm explaining it to you, not literally translating it to you. They so completely failed to act on it, live it in any way whatsoever, that no one around them even viewed them as a mu'min, and therefore none of you even viewed them as a mu'min. But I know what is in the hearts of people, and I knew that deep, deep, deep down they did believe in me, even if they pretended to be all philosophically atheist and agnostic. I'll tell you, take them out. However, then the hadith, now getting back now to the more literal text of the hadith, when they are taken out, they're blackened and charred beyond recognition as humans. Because their long stay in Jahannam. Then Allah Ta'ala will dip them in the water of Hawz Kothar. This is the water that these muttaqeen get to drink by the hand of the Prophet straight on the way to Jannah. Allah Ta'ala will dip them into Hawz Kothar and then they will come out 
their bodies will come out again reformed and pure and intact and you know sahih salim right however they will have one stamp on their forehead which is called utaqa ur rahman those who were freed specially from specially by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ur rahman by the all merciful one from jahannam so when they enter into jannah then they will ask Allah Subhanahu Ya Allah, we are so happy here. And after, it doesn't say how long, after some time, which again could be a long period of time, but they say, well, there's just one thing, that all of our time in Jannah has, alhamdulillah, erased all of our memories from that time we were in Jannah. But there's one thing that reminds us, and that is the stamp on our forehead. So can you remove that as well? And Allah Subhanahu will say, yes, I remove that also. And then they will live for all of eternity as the people of Jannah. Alright? So Jannah Hanam is made for kafirin. And its eternality is made exclusively for kafirin. But non-muktakeen mu'meen will have to go through there first. So this is the ishara here that where we... Uh, I'm going to lose myself in this one. وَإِدَّدْ لِلْمُتَّقِينَ that Jannat is prepared for the people of Taqwa. Now here Allah Ta'ala, very important ayat. If we want to know how can we become muttaqin and enter that Jannah directly, Allah Ta'ala is going to mention some of the sifat of the muttaqin. Alladhina yunfikuna fissarra'i wa dharra'i That these are those people who spend for the sake of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala when it's easy for them in matters of financial ease. Wadharra'i Even in hardship they will give a few rupees away still. No matter how hardship they will be. And you'll find people they don't like that, right? They may be monthly giving a donation to some masjid. This is more in America, right? And something slight, have the slightest decrease in their income. Just the slightest dip in their income, they stop. All charitable activities right there and there. Allahu Akbar. Ajeeb. Right? Walqadameen al-ghayth. And there are people number two who swallow their anger. This is literally what it means. They swallow their anger. They imbibe their anger. They suppress their anger. What does it mean? It means that, okay, sometimes they may, so being with the king, you may still sometimes feel angry. Right? You may sometimes still feel angry, but you have so much control that you suppress it, you never let yourself act on it. Means swallow it means you don't let it come above your neck. Means you don't speak due to that anger. Your face doesn't change because of that anger. You don't mind, doesn't think thoughts and make plots and planning on the basis of that anger. You don't make decisions on the basis of that anger. They have such level of taqwa because they fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second the anger wells up, they realize that Allah ta'ala has every right to be angry at me. So even if I am justifiably angry at this person, even if this person has done something wrong to me, and I'm fully deserved of being angry with them, what if Allah Ta'ala treats me the same way? Because I've justifiably, I've done things that would make him justifiably angry with me. And because I want Allah Ta'ala to wave that, to wave his justifiable anger on me, out of my fear for Allah, my taqwa, I will wave my justifiable anger for this person. And third attribute Allah Ta'ala mentions in this ayah so far, وَآفِينَ عَنِ Nas. Let's just make sure... Yes, well, afina anin nas that they forgive people. Which people? Believers? Fellow muttaqin? No. Fellow mu'mineen? No. Anin nas. Who are muttaqin? 
the people who are forgiving over all of humanity, whether they're muttaqi or not, whether they're mu'min or not. They have this, but you can urdu dar They have this ability to forgive. So here comes one of them. Repeat it again. Wallahu yuhibbul muhsineen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves those who do good. Now, walladheena idh fa'alu fahishatan. This is a very important verse. This surah al-Imran 135. I know I said that many times, but I would really say for our younger generation, LGS, etc. And if LGS and Lums combination ho, to kya baat hai? They should really know this verse. <laughs> Alright? Okay. وَالَّذِينَ إِذَا فَعَلُوا فَاهِشَةً Those who commit an evil deed, a fahisha, an indecency, immodesty, unchastity, impurity, but can also mean any sin. But that's coming. أَوْ ظَلَمُوا أَنفُسَهُمْ Or wrong themselves in any way whatsoever, commit any sins. What should they do? Number one, ذَكَرُ Allah. They should make dhikr, they should remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They shouldn't think that now I've done sin, I forget him, I leave him, I did sin at night, I don't wake up for fajr. They shouldn't think like that. Allah ta'ala wants it. When you do sin, remember me, no problem. Remember me. Because I am At-Tawab, I am Al-Ghafoor, I am Al-Rahim. Remember Allah. And then do what? فَاسْتَغْفَرُوا that you should ask Allah Ta'ala's forgiveness. For what? لِذُنُوبِهِمْ That they, they ask Allah Ta'ala's forgiveness for their sins. So first dhikr and then istighfar. وَمَنْ يَغْفِرْ And who is there who can forgive? الذُنُوبَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Who is there who can forgive sins except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? When you fall into sin, there is no other place for you to turn. There is no one else to turn to. It befits you to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it befits Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive you. Allah Akbar. What more could a young man or woman want? Walam yusirru ala ma fa'alu wa hum ya'lamun. Now what is this? They don't persist. This is important. Right? That after they turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after they make the zikr, after they seek Allah's forgiveness, they don't persist. If they fall into it again, if they slip, slip is something, persist is something else. Persist means, you sit through this type of israr. Israr means to do something with no intention of leaving it. Now this person, obviously when they made istighfar, they have some level of intention at least of leaving it. So if afterwards they slip, they should just make that same zikr and istighfar again. Now what will happen for such people? أُولَٰئِكَ جَزَاؤُهُمْ مَغْفِرَةٌ مِّن رَبِّهِمْ Such people will have as their recompense a forgiveness from their Rabb. وَجَنَّاتٌ تَجِيمٍ مِّن تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ And they will have gardens underneath which rivers flow. And جَنَّةٌ خَالَدِينَ فِيهَا They will dwell there in forever. وَنِعْمَ أَجْرُ الْآمِرِينَ And wonderful indeed and excellent indeed is the reward Allah Ta'ala has given for the Amilin. Amilin now, this is the new word that you've come across in Quran. Amilin, the workers. So it means Allah Ta'ala is trying to show you that when you sin and make istighfar, ye ek amal hai, ek kaam hai, ek mehnat hai, ek mujahida hai. When you are tempted by your desires to do sin, and then you force yourself to do zikr and istighfar, and then again you fall into sin, and again you do zikr and istighfar, Allah Ta'ala is attesting to the fact that that is itself an amal. If you think that, no, I don't have any good deeds, all I have is sins and my tawbah over. So the two ways, right? First way is that this is an amal, this is a task. An arduous task, so you are going to get reward for the sponsor for doing it. And second, that don't think I don't have any amal, I just have sins in my tawbah over them. That tawbah itself is an amal. 
that tawbah itself is an amal over those sins. All right. Okay, many, many sunan here means, and we're talking about sunnahs of anbiya, many, many customary practices have existed before you and have passed in communities before. فَسِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ فَانْظُرُوا كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ That you should travel the world, travel the world. But with what niyat? فَانْظُرُوا And you should look and reflect and gaze and learn what was the outcome of those who cast lies upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is referring to, this is referring to when you go to ruins, and you can do this, right? This is some, you know, you can think some type of Islamic tourism group we can make for you, that if you go to the ruins of past communities, you're going to come later and come like Ad and Thamud, you can actually go, I think, to Yemen, I think, and certain places, they have such tours, where that you take you to the ruins of those communities who were brought to ruin by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's punishment due to their disbelief. And when a person stands there amidst such vast ruins, they think that look look at the might and power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that this was such a mighty civilization, a mighty city, and they were brought to ruins because they disobeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So who am I? I'm just a single soul human being. How much can Allah ta'ala bring me to ruin and destruction if I disobey in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? All right? So now, this is interesting, now, yeah, we did this. So this is a bayan for humanity. This is a clear, open discourse statement for humanity. And it's a hidayah for them. But it's a mo'idah for who? It depends where you stop at the ha. Wow. How about, actually more properly would be that this is a clear, clear exposition. Put it that way. The Quran is a clear exposition for humanity. And... It is a source of guidance and a sort, source. Mo'idah means a source from which you obtain nasiha. A source of obtaining advice for the muttaqeen, for the people of taqwa. So it means that the more taqwa a person has, the more hidayah they will get, the more nasiha they will get from Qur'an or Qur'an. Alright. This first part, this question of Jannat being, when the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described Jannat as expanding all the, all that lies above on the earth. The case of revelation of this is that Sayyidina Anas, Anhu was asked about this question once, about this ayah, that how can the skies and the earth accommodate Jannah, if Jannah is expanding them? So, Sayyidina Anas said that no, by expanding it, it means that Jannah lies above and beyond. It doesn't mean that Jannah equals the Samawat and earth. It means Jannah's expanse is so wide that it encompasses and transcends all that lies above. So you can imagine, those of you who studied and even a little bit of astronomy and astrophysics, right? Even I think the next star away from us from the sun is I don't know how many millions of light years. And the furthest star away that they think of is probably billions and trillions and trillions to the power of billions and trillions of light years away. So Jannat is even bigger than all of that. That's how wide the expanse of Jannat is. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for the people of Alright. I haven't mentioned this to you earlier in the Lahul Mufsaneen, one way that Ihsan has been defined is Sayyidina Rasulullah in a very famous hadith in Bukhari Muslim was asked by the angel Jibreel, what is Ihsan? And the Prophet respond that Ihsan is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as if you see him. 
to have such a level of focus, awareness, concentration, dhikr, khushu, khudu in your ibadah as if you're seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you're not able to do that, that is called mushahada. If you're not able to do that, then second, that you're intensely aware that Allah ta'ala is watching you. You are aware that you are under surveillance. This is called muraqabah because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, alaykum raqibah, that He is intensely watchful over you. This notion of taking heed from previous nations isn't just necessarily can be said about traveling and looking at their ruins, can also be, un- can also, you could extend it if you want to reading their histories, right? Learn from the histories of past communities, right? But study history and in that sense study all of the liberal arts, humanities and social sciences with a purpose of how to better understand and inculcate and implement your deen, right? Okay. Wala tahinu. وَلَا وَأَنْتُمُ الْأَعْلَوْنَ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ This is an ayah which we gave you a whole lecture on. In the same place. وَلَا means that don't lose, don't become cowardly, don't lose courage. Don't lose courage. <coughs> it can also mean don't be lazy. Don't lose courage or don't be lazy. وَلَا And don't be sad, don't be depressed. And this is what people happens to people when the halat are bad. The first thing that happens is they become, either they lose courage, they get cowardice, or they be, lose their strength, their dynamism, they become lazy, and they just sit around in a state of apathy. Second thing that happens to them is huzn, they get sad and depressed over the situation. The Allah said, don't do these two things, and how could you do these things? And you are people who are, you know, who are supposed to be alone is plural of being elevated. You are the elevated triumphant ones in kuntum mu'mineen, if indeed you are true believers. So as long as you're mu'mineen, you will be alone. As long as you're mu'mineen, there's no need to have this uh, being sad. Alright. May Allah Ta'ala accept this studying and learning from us. And may Allah Ta'ala accept all of your mashallah sabr and sweating and humidity and enduring this for the sake of his Qur'an, Allah knows best that maybe some of the perspiration that we suffer in these few days will save us from sweating the perspiration in the Day of Judgment. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we want you to endow us with the insight into the deen of Islam. Let us always discover and follow the ulama who have insight into the deen of Islam. Grant us always the true ilm of Qur'an, the ilm of the seed of Nabi alayhi salam. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, put in all of our hearts an undying, unfading love for the sahaba Ikram. Let us always understand and know them to be ones who are loved by you, pardoned by you, forgiven by you, accepted by you, and yet it became, let us enable ourselves to follow in their footsteps. Let us love Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam as much as they loved him. Let us follow the, the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam as much as the sahaba followed his sunnah. And yet it became, when we are also being attacked and threatened, let us also be willing to defend ourselves against the aggressors. Let us also be willing to establish justice and peace and security in this world. 
Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you forgive us for our sins, forgive us for our mistakes, forgive us for our ignorance. And Ya Allah, as you said in Quran al-Kareem, that whenever a person does fahsha, if they make dhikr of you, if they make istighfar to you, that they will find you all forgiving and all merciful. Ya Allah, we have committed so much fahsha in our lives. We have been disloyal to you, disloyal to the deen, untrue to our own salah, untrue to our fasting, untrue to our Quran. Ya Allah, but we are gathering now to remember you and we make istighfar to you. We seek your forgiveness, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, make us according to that ayah of Quran. Come to us, send your mercy to us in your sifat of ghafoor rahim And Ya Allah, we ask that you forgive us for all of our fasha. Keep us away from fasha. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we wish to lead a life of purity, a life in which we are chaste, a life in which we are true, a life in which we are sincere, a life in which we are loyal and loving to you. Ya Allah, with this nisbat of Qur'an, make us Qur'anic mu'mineen, make us Qur'anic muttaqeen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, all of the sifat of muttaqeen that we read today and that we read in previous days and that we may read yet in coming days. Ya Allah, let us adorn ourselves with each and any one of those attributes. Let us learn to swallow our anger, to control our temper, to be less reactive, to be less harsh. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, just like Sayyidina Rasulullah remained soft even with those of his beloveds who let him down and he was able to win them back. If any one of our beloveds let us down, Ya Rabbi Kareem, let us be soft with them. Let us learn to be forgiving with them. Let us learn to pardon them and join them with us as firmly as you join Sayyidina the Sahaba with Sayyidina Rasulullah Rabbana takambal minna innaka anta samiul alim wa tubu alayna innaka anta tawabur rahim wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin